Hey everybody, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. And here is the intro to a wonderful episode that we did with Derek Gilbert. Actually, I only did about 50% of it. Yeah. Actually, if 50% is my normal number, I only did about 25% of it. Yeah, but it's okay. You made it and you, uh, you contributed to the conversation somewhat. Well, oh, thanks, buddy. Yeah, so this is uh, one of the ones that's happened a couple times in the history of Canary Cry Radio where I had to come in a little bit later, but uh, that's what happens. But it's, you know what, Gons, you did a pretty good job in the first half, too, there, pal. So. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, um, I, I got to say, you have to stop with the time jumps. You know, yeah. it's really screwing with your schedule. You're missing appointments. Um, you know, Right, well, that's the thing. It's hard to get back to, like, right where you need to be. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I missed half of this one. I accidentally went a little bit too far back, uh, hung out with, um, uh, John F. Kennedy for a little while, gave him Ooh. a little warning. Um, he didn't take the hint. Uh, so <laughs> came back and everything was the same. Yeah. It was just a failed mission. Um, so <laughs> except so. you're in one of the photos of, uh, that, that fateful day. <laughs> right. But you'll never know who I am. Yeah. I'm just, I you're, am you're in one grainy, of the photos. Yeah. You're grainy. Uh, you know, you got those glasses on the hat. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so <laughs> we have a wonderful episode with, uh, Derek Gilbert and man, we talk about all sorts of stuff. He's got a new book coming out. Um, uh, what's that book guns? Uh, the great inception. We'll the definitely great inception. talk about it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's really following in the footsteps of Dr. Michael Heiser and, uh, you know, and we'll, we'll discuss some of that in the actual conversation, yeah. but, uh, yeah, it was good to talk to Derek. It's been a while. And, um, you know, Sharon wasn't on the call this time around, uh, his wife and partner at Skywatch TV and, and PID radio and all that. But, yeah. Usually uh, they're doing, they, they're like inseparable. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, I think Sharon's busy first off getting into like incredible shape and, <laughs> <laughs> and then second of all, I think she's like writing books and stuff too. So. They're all, all right. busy people over there at Skywatch. We, you can't blame her for that. Yeah. So uh, there we go. So this is going to be an awesome episode. Uh, before that, we do want to take some time to recognize and to celebrate a, a wonderful man who has been in the community for quite a while, a great researcher, a great author, and a wonderful friend of this show, especially. Um, and he, we've done a few podcasts with him. And um, uh, You know what's, what's not... I don't, I don't even think it's public and we, maybe we will make it public. We had a sit down interview with him at, where were we in Ohio somewhere a couple of years ago? Yeah. Wasn't it at one of the conferences? Yeah, that was, yeah, yeah. It was the, um, the world turned upside down conference in Dublin, Ohio. And we actually I think we videotaped it too. That sounds like something we did. Yes. I know we, I know we are doing a whole bunch of those, but he was one of them. Yeah. He was one um, of them. So yeah, I don't know if we ever did anything with that. So yeah, maybe well, we'll think, release that. I think people that have the DVDs of the conference will have it, you know, as like a bonus disc thing in there, but I don't think it's ever been published uh, through our stream. So maybe we'll do that. Right. And of course we're talking about the, the great and wonderful Chris D. Putnam. Did we not even mention his name? No, I was about to, and then you jumped in. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. We're <laughs> talking okay. about Chris Putnam. <laughs> Um, he, he's, he's going to be very sorely missed. Uh, we knew him, you know, personally, we, we've done interviews with him. We've hung out at conferences and he's just a wonderful guy and, and just smart, smart as anything. Yeah, really smart. Um, and so we, we, you know, we celebrate his life 
and he is uh, dancing in the streets now up there in uh, heaven, and we're just so glad to have known him. And uh, I think we're going to post a couple of his uh, episodes that we did, as well as maybe this little special content. Yeah. Um, just uh, really, uh, you know, I was just so happy to know the guy. Yeah, get people who have maybe never heard of his work to actually, you know, look into it. He did a lot of research. Um, I think a lot of it was somewhat ahead of its time. I mean, he... He, you know, it's weird because some of the stuff that you hear him talk about with the supernatural worldview and all that stuff uh, really came to pass, I think, in the last, like, six months in the elections and everything. We saw a lot of, like, the dark satanic stuff come to the surface. So, um, and, like, a supernatural, you know, worldview, even though it's kind of a, you know, occult paranormal type of thing or whatever. But, um, you know, he was on top of that. He saw the shift coming in academia and everything else. So yeah, he'll be missed, but you know what? He he's probably got so much more knowledge now of what's really going on. I know, like he's the probably, shape of the earth. He's probably he's up like, there laughing guys, at all of us. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rhombus. <laughs> it's it was a pyramid the whole time. Oh no, wake up, sheeple. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, again, well, he will be very missed and we are just so happy to have known him uh, in his in his time here on earth um but i suppose uh, it's time to start this episode eh, guns? let's do it okay let's go and it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters and the angels the children of the heaven saw and lusted after them and said to one another come let us choose us wives from among the children of men and beget us children and Simjazo was their leader, and said unto them, I fear you will not indeed agree to do this deed, and I alone shall have to pay the penalty of a great sin. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath, and all bind ourselves by mutual imprecations not to abandon this plan, but to do this thing. Then swear they all together and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And they were in all two hundred who descended in the days of Jared on the summit of Mount Hermon. And they called it Mount Hermon because they had sworn and bound themselves by mutual imprecations upon it. And all the others together with them took unto themselves wives, and each chose for himself one. And they began to go in unto them and to defile themselves with them. And they taught them charms and enchantments and the cutting of roots and made them acquainted with plants. And they became pregnant and bare great giants whose height was three thousand L's who consumed all the acquisitions of men. And when men could no longer sustain them, the giants turned against them and devoured mankind. And they began to sin against birds and beasts and reptiles and fish, and to devour one another's flesh, and to drink the blood. Then the earth laid accusation against the lawless ones. This is Canary Cry Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Gons. Basil is in his slumber. He might join us at some point. It is episode number 116, and here with us today, this man requires no true introduction. He's a past guest, and uh, he's the host of Skywatch TV, A View from the Bunker, PID Radio, and now he's an official, well, he has actually been an author of fictional books, but I think this is his first nonfiction book, Correct. Uh, Derek Gilbert. Welcome back to Canary Cry Radio. How you doing? Thanks, guns. Thanks, Basil! Maybe that's... <laughs> We'll see if that wakes him up. <laughs> Just awfully nice, you know, that he even bothered to wake up for this interview. That shows where I rank in the list of guests. 
Really Jeez. <laughs> That's going to get back to him and, uh, <laughs> and, and that'll straighten him up. So that, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. So we're just going to start talking here because you are about to publish a book, the great inception. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, uh, I believe this is sort of your conglomerate of what you've been looking at with this entire genre for years. Now you're one of the first ones to start a podcast with PID radio on the subject with your wife, Sharon. Is this really kind of the summation of everything you've seen and, and learned about the Bible in the stuff that doesn't get talked about? Well, I, I don't know if I'd characterize it quite that way. I mean, really, this this grew out of um, sheer desperation about a year ago because um, we at Skywatch TV were co-sponsoring the uh, Rocky Mountain International Prophecy Conference last July in Colorado Springs, and Bob Ulrich for reasons known only to him chose to uh, make me the 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 ultimate the, the the final speaker in the main room on sunday so it's like okay we're gonna have you bet clean up you're gonna give the last presentation of the weekend in the main room closer yeah exactly so it's like um now i've been for the last few years talking about two main topics one is dominionism dominion theology or kingdom now theology and i do touch on that in the great inception a bit uh, the other topic is transhumanism, and those are two things that uh, Sharon and I have been researching, and uh, we had started writing a book called uh, Rise of the Cyber Gods that got put on a shelf right. that will probably come back at some point, but uh, I wanted to do something different than what I had been doing for the previous three or four years, just recycling the same uh, material. I didn't feel that was fair to people who were paying either to travel to Colorado Springs or to watch the live stream on uh, uh, via the internet. So um, we've been doing a uh, an online Bible study each week. And this has sort of taken the place of PID Radio as far as our weekly schedule for me and Sharon. Uh, Sundays, we spend an hour on the Old Testament and an hour on the New Testament. And we're going through the Testaments in uh, chronological order. And we had gotten to the book of Exodus and a story that we're all familiar with, which is the crossing of the Red Sea. and Usually, when I've heard this preached on in church, and what I remember of it in Sunday school, it's um, given to us as an object lesson in faith. Uh, Moses had faith that God would save them from the Egyptians. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's logical. But when you read uh, Exodus chapter 14, beginning at the first verse, you read that God told Moses to tell the Israelites to turn back, turn around. Okay, this is after the plagues, the slaying of the firstborn, the uh, Israelites are leaving. Uh, Pharaoh has a change of heart and he starts chasing them with his with his army and his chariots. Right. God tells the Israelites to turn around. I'd never noticed that before. So why did God tell them to turn around? And then the next verse it says, "Okay, you're going to camp all night at a place next to Pi Haharoth facing Baal Zephon." Hmm. Wait a minute now. You know, I'm no historian, but I'm an, you know I know enough of ancient history to know that Baal was a Canaanite or Semitic god. He was not one of the Egyptian gods. What was Baal doing in Egypt? Why did God tell the? Okay, well, if it's in the Bible, and this is something that Mike Heiser always says, and credit where it's due, by the way, uh, just about everything you read in the Great Inception is based on the research of Mike Heiser and the Divine Council paradigm in his book, The Unseen Realm, especially. Um, and if people haven't read that book, they, they should buy it right now 
stop the podcast, buy that book, and then read it. Yeah, I uh, agree. It's yeah. an audio book too, so no excuses. Yeah, exactly. So I tried to figure, so I started doing some research to figure out why God would tell the Israelites to turn around. He, why not send more flaming hailstones to destroy the Egyptian army? Why did he have them turn around, camp all night, facing a place called Baal Zaphon before parting the Red Sea? You know, why make this big production out of it? Why stop all night and have the, you know, camp there all night with the, uh, the, the column of, of smoke and fire between the Israelites and the Egyptian army? Right. Well, all right. Baal is a Canaanite deity. Now, what is Baal Zephon? What is Zephon? Turns out that's the name of the mountain in Turkey. It's on the border between Turkey and Syria, right on the Mediterranean coast, hmm. where everybody in the ancient world knew Baal's palace was located. That was Baal's holy mountain. All right, ah. just like Yahweh has a holy mountain, and he's had actually several. If you read the Bible carefully, Eden was the first one, Sinai was the second. Um, but Zephon was the holy mountain of Baal, or as they knew him back in the day, uh, Hadad, the, the Semitic storm god. Uh, we in the Bible would know him as Baal. So that didn't answer the question of what was Baal doing in Egypt? Well, there's a period in Egyptian history called the Second Intermediate Period, where the uh, Egyptians were not in control of northern Egypt. They were on they, at, during the period uh, of, of time that the uh, Israelites were in Egypt, and for some period thereafter, uh, the uh, the gods of Egypt had no sway in northern Egypt or lower Egypt, as it, as it's called. Um, the uh, Semitic a Semitic people called the uh, the Hyksos came down from Canaan and gradually took control of the Nile Delta. That's exactly where the Israelites were. And of course, you know, scholars will say, well, there's no evidence of Israelite occupation in Egypt at any point ever. Well, that's just, that's just wrong. Um, scholars have known for decades, probably a century, that Semitic-speaking people called the Hyksos were in control of Egypt during the period of history when the Israelites would have been there. In fact, one of their kings was named Jacob. Hmm. Yeah, Jacob Har, Jacob of the Mountain. Now, probably not the patriarch Jacob, but it just makes the point that there were Semitic-speaking people in control. of, And, of course, when they came, they brought their gods, not just Baal, but Astarte, which was their version of Ishtar or Inanna, Mm -hmm. Venus, Aphrodite, same goddess, uh, and another god called Reshef, who is interesting in his own right. We'll get to that later. Um, And not only did they bring the worship of these Canaanite or Semitic gods into uh, Egypt— after the Hyksos were run out of Egypt by the uh, native Egyptian kings, uh, King Amos uh, was the one who finally uh, did the deed. Uh, but they continued worshiping Baal for a couple hundred more years. In fact, about 200 years later, the great uh, uh, Pharaoh Ramses, or Ewell Brenner, if you're old enough to remember the movie, was still a Baal worshiper. He erected a, uh, a commemorative stela called the Year 400 Stela. Hmm. that uh, commemorated the arrival of Baal, who they equated with the Egyptian god Set, the brother of Osiris, the god of right. the desert, the god of chaos, the god of storms. To the, uh, d- during this period of Egyptian history, Baal and Set were the same. All right? Hmm. So, um, just at the time, so you know, we'll, st- we'll step back and-, and look at the overview. Just at the time that Jacob follows Joseph into Egypt, 
the, uh, the a Semitic people, basically the neighbors of uh, the Israelites, Jacob and his family, had come down into Egypt at the same time and taken control of the political machinery there and brought their gods with them. So just as the Israelites were arriving in Egypt, Baal was arriving in Egypt. Now, is this a coincidence? Mm, mm. I'm not much of a coincidence <laughs> theorist. Right. Is it, was it a coincidence that when the Israelites were being led out of Egypt by Yahweh, that Yahweh specifically told Moses, turn around, camp in front of this place named for the holy mountain of Baal, Right. camp facing it all night, and then the next day I'm going to do a miracle. Now, why the parting of the Red Sea? Hadad, Baal, was a storm god, but he was also in Canaanite cosmology, the god who mastered the god of the sea. Right. It was the god of chaos, Yam, and, and Yam's uh, uh, evil sidekick, Lotan, the sea monster, which is their version of Leviathan. Right. Okay. Uh, this is what we call a psychological operation, PSYOP, feeding false information <laughs> to people in order to get them to change what they believe because what, what, what you do depends on what you believe. Right. Uh, so Baal was the, uh, the master of the sea. He was patron god of sailors for the uh, Canaanites and the Phoenicians who followed them. And so God, Yahweh, has him camp all night in front of a place named for Baal's holy mountain, sacred to Baal, on the shore of the Red Sea. And then the next day, it's like, okay, you Baal worshipers, watch this. (laughs) You want to say your God (laughs) is the master of the sea? Boom, parts the Red Sea. A couple million Israelites go into this, this gap with a wall of water on either side. Now, the Egyptians, or the, the Hyksos, who, whichever, must have thought, okay, this is, this is beautiful, because our God has obviously set a trap for these people. Because our God is the God of the sea, the master of the sea. Right, they think Baal is doing the parting. Exactly. They rush into the sea, and then, boom, covered over, everybody dies. This was not a coincidence. This was not uh, a, 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 an accident. This was not Yahweh just showing off. This was Yahweh sending a very specific message to the spirit realm and to the fallen gods, fallen angels, if you prefer, but God in the Bible calls them gods. So I'm on safe ground here um, that they have no power except what God Yahweh allows them to have. Right. This was a specific message to all worshipers of these fallen gods, these uh, rebellious gods that Yahweh is supreme. This was God not just delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh. This was God delivering them from the hand of Baal. It was a very specific message. And the whole point of the book, The Great Inception, is that the Bible is filled with stuff like that. If we read it with an eye to this, uh, with a mindset that we're looking for these divine counsel references, that these gods, these rebellious gods are real. Right. And that the Bible is a history of their rebellion and God's strategy, his plan. And his tactics for restoring humanity to our original place in the divine council on God's holy mountain. Yeah, it's quite remarkable when you start looking into it. I mean, the whole time you're describing this whole part of the Exodus that's you know, not often spoken about or, or the context of it, it reminded me of the first Kings 18, right, with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And it's kind of like one of those things, how did they not learn that, you know, Baal isn't really... Uh, maybe not the one that you should be worshiping if they killed all all the people back in Egypt. 
Uh, but here we are in First Kings, you know, with Elijah, the prophets of Baal, and the fire yeah. coming down. It's the same kind of thing, right? Same About 500 years later, yeah. yeah. But, you know, that's that's a long period of time. I mean, let's think about, you know, 500 years ago from us was, you know, what, uh, King Henry VIII? Right. So, you know, that's that's a long period of time. And people have short memories. True. Um, the, the <laughs> Very Israelites, true. The Israelites had a, a long history of doing exactly that. I mean, Ahab was the, probably the worst of the bunch because... Um, after the confrontation in Mount Carmel, and, and there's a there's a kicker that I'll, I'll talk about here in just a second, um, because I almost forgot to include Mount Carmel in the book. I, I didn't include it in my presentation last summer, and then Sharon kind of nudged me afterwards and said, uh, "You know, you missed one. <laughs> you had seven holy mountains in your presentation, but uh, you missed you missed a really big one." Like, really? <laughs> and then when I started reading into it, like, oh yeah. <laughs> but Ahab had that miracle happen right in front of him. But then when you read 1 Kings 19, 20, 21, uh, 22, you discover that there were a couple of miraculous victories that God granted the army of Israel, the northern kingdom, against the Syrians, the Arameans. You know, overwhelming odds. And yet prophets came and said, look, um, Yahweh says, so that you will know that he is Lord. He's going to give the Arameans into your hand today. Um, even though the Bible describes the uh, Israelite army looking like a you know flock of lost sheep, you know surrounded by a, a multitude, right? So even even though he had these three miracles happen, you know two major victories over the Aramean army that shouldn't have happened, plus the uh, lightning from heaven uh, on Mount Carmel, Ahab still continued worshiping Baal, and that and, and letting uh, uh, King uh, Ben Hadad of uh, of Aram of Damascus go after God had declared him Karem, you know, devoted to destruction. And that caused the end of uh, Ahab and his family line. Um, Ahab, uh, uh, Mount Carmel was, is really remarkable when you think about it. Mar- Mount Carmel is another holy mountain. Um, it was considered sacred at least as far back as the um, 15th century BC, uh, 14th century BC. Thutmose III, who was uh, like the greatest military commander uh, king that Egypt had until the time of Ramses the Great um, fought uh, as far north as the Euphrates in northern Syria uh, on his way to a battle at uh, Megiddo against a co- coalition of Canaanite kings called Mount Carmel uh, the Holy Headland. So we, we know that it was considered holy for a long time. We read in 1 Kings 18 that there was, a, uh, uh, there was an altar to Yahweh that had been torn down to build one to Baal. Right. And of course, uh, Jezebel was responsible for not just um, making the worship of Baal acceptable in Israel. Again, when I say Israel at this point, it was the, it was the northern kingdom. Judah was a separate kingdom by this point. Her father was um, a man named Eth Baal, which means man of Baal, king of Tyre. He was a priest to the goddess Astarte, Ishtar, the mm-hmm. goddess of sex and war. Um, and by sex, you know, we're not talking Venus and the image we have today of Venus as the goddess of love. No, we're talking carnal, extramarital, uh, gender fluid sex. Right. Which is, uh, has been a part of the alchemical tradition for uh, as long as there's been the truth. It all seems to tie in together with a lot of the uh, occult beliefs. I mean, this is where it comes from. These are the gods that uh, gave the information uh, right. in whatever means, channeling, whatever. Uh so, you know, it's really interesting, but I do want to ask you a question about specifically in talking up, uh, talking about that holy mountain of God, Eden being the first one and the guardian cherub being there at one point, Ezekiel right. 28, who is the guardian cherub in the context of these other gods like Baal and Asheroth, Molech, 
you know, Dagon, all these gods that exist in the, the ancient pantheon? Well, that's a good question. And I don't think we can say for certain. Um, we get hints in the Bible that it's, uh, Satan, but, um, you know, in the old Testament, Satan is not a, uh, a personal name. It's a, uh, it's a title, ha Satan, the Satan, the accuser. It's a job description or a job title. And it's not until the book of revelation that, um, you get a, uh, a link between Satan and, uh, that old serpent, right? You know, the, the dragon. Uh, and that kind of links back to the imagery of the serpent in the garden. But the serpent in Hebrew is the Nakash, and elsewhere in the Old Testament, Nakash is used interchangeably with seraph, which is the root word for seraphim. Right. So, so are we looking at a cherub? Are we looking at a, ser- a seraph? A, you know, one of the seraphim, one of the cherubim? I don't know. To be honest with you, I, I kind of look at that in some depth in the book. Um, it's possible that this divine rebel in Eden was, um, uh, you know, one of one of more than one, uh, you know, rebel in Eden. I mean, maybe there was a, uh, one of the seraphim and one of the cherubim. You know, both rebelled at the same time. The Nakash, one of the seraphim, and a guardian cherub, right, who guarded, guarded the way to the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, both rebelled. We don't know. Um, Mike Heiser suggests that. Um, Cherubim and seraphim may be uh, different words for the same type of entity. They were typically, def- and they, they seem to fulfill the same role in the Bible and in ancient Near Eastern cosmo- uh, cosmology um, as sort of uh, divine throne guardians. Uh, whether they're cherubim or seraphim, I mean, in the book of Isaiah, they're clearly uh, guardians of, uh, of the throne of Yahweh. Uh, the ancient kings, the kings of the ancient Near East, always had thrones that uh, were you're surrounded by imagery uh, uh, of these uh, cherubs, these uh, uh, that look more like sphinxes than than the images that we have of uh, cherubim. I, I think our our image of what a cherub is is uh, been too heavily influenced by uh, medieval painters. You know, right? The little the little, chubby little boys with dinky wings. You know you know, flying around. Uh, No, this is absolutely incorrect. Cherubim were seriously bad dudes that you did not want to mess with. Um, They look more like this, a sphinx, like a a winged lion or a winged bull than, um, you know, a a, a human. Uh, But they had four different faces. You know, the the human, the ox, the eagle, and the lion. Um, So it's imagery that was appropriated by human kings from the... uh, the divine guardians in, in heaven. And again, this is part of that psyop that the enemy has been working against us since the beginning. You know, ye shall be as gods. Well, you're a king. You deserve the same type of uh, guardian that, uh, you know, the, the gut that the gods have. So, right. uh, and in different cultures are called different things, Lamasu or Shedu, you know, um, but uh, it, it's, it's hard to say again, Nakash, Seraph, interchangeable in the old Testament. So we get this idea of a, uh, and plus as you know, Dr. Heiser's done a, a really excellent job of breaking down the the implications and meanings of the word nakash uh, without getting into all of the etymology because i'm i'm not an ancient language scholar uh essentially it implies something that is a uh, a a a glowing or or um like illuminating bronze shining yeah that shining was the word i was trying to think of shining being of um a, a divine 
uh, appearance uh, and possibly serpentine appearance because Nakash also often translated as snake or serpent. So, um, which raises other questions about some of the imagery and uh, little figurines that have been found in the ancient Near East. But so you, you got this this shining serpentine uh, entity in the garden speaking to Adam and Eve. Uh, but then you got this image of the 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 cherub uh, looking like a a really you know frightening winged bull or or lion. Um, you know which is the correct image I, I, again i don't know the answer to that right, uh, again, right we've got a couple different answers either different names for the same entity or you've got multiple entities more than one who decided to rebel and considering that you've got the uh, incident on mount herman with the watchers possibly as many as 200 rebel angels who decided to uh, rebel then and then you've got the 70 sons of god bene elohim who rebelled after the tower of babel right. when god placed them over the nation so you've got multiple waves of rebellion against God the Father, God the Creator, to deal with. And the Bible, again, reflects that if we know what to look for. It's a lot more exciting when you're reading this and understanding that a lot of things that are happening there are concealed because of the the limits of uh, English as a language and because of choices that translators have made right. to kind of de-emphasize the supernatural aspect of these confrontations. Yeah, I remember David Flynn um, in his, you know, groundbreaking book, the, the Sidonia, uh, Chronicles of Mars talking about some of the stuff you mentioned here with the form of a cherubim or caribim, what they look like. I know he can, he makes the connection to those faces on Mars and whatnot. And that's, that's, uh, you know, it's still debatable kind of, kind of stuff, but you know, he, he brought up the, um, connection to the Holy mountain idea in, in certain, in, in other mythologies, I think Greek mythology, right. The, uh, or, uh, the, um, the story of Arthur when, uh, heaven and earth touched, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. So it's really interesting that, that there is this mountain idea. It almost makes me think that in my head, in my, you know, crazy imagination, as I was uh, going oh, over some of the stuff you've written, <laughs> um, <laughs> just seeing literally the sky or some, some, I don't know, I don't know how to really describe it, but some sort of twister opening up in the sky. And, and here's God coming down with during Ezekiel's vision, during, Elijah being taken away by the whirlwind, all these events seem to suggest some sort of dimensional thing going on. I mean, that's, yeah. that's the best way we can describe it in our sort of modern vernacular with science fiction and all that. Yeah. It just seems to make sense. And, and that's that supernatural context that is completely removed from the biblical story as far as people get it today. And um, I think, you know, it's, it's just important to get this stuff because it's, uh, it makes the Bible much more exciting, I think. Well, even more than that, I think from the importance, I, I, I think it's important as a um, soldier in a, in a supernatural war, which we all are. I mean, whether we acknowledge the fact or not, we are on a battlefield surrounded by enemy combatants who want to kill us and everyone that we love. So why wouldn't you want to know everything you could possibly know about these entities who are far older, far more intelligent and want to do you harm? Yeah. It, it just, yeah. I mean, th to me, that that just seems like a like a no brainer. Yeah, and it seems like the that same war is is manifesting so much in today's kind of chaotic landscape of where we're at with everything. And you know, you know I, I know you didn't specifically probably bring up uh, transhumanism in this book, but I, I do want to touch on some of that a little bit because obviously you've been looking at it, and mm. and and I think you you also see the the prophetic 
implications of some of that stuff and, and tying it back to the ancient past with these gods, what do you think is going to be the connection or um, I guess, is there a narrative that could be spun with, you know, the whole disclosure thing? I mean, there's all sorts of possibilities, a lot of conspiracy fringe topics to get into, but well, I sure hope so, because we're probably going to be writing a book on that by the end of the year. So, Okay, great. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I hope so. Uh, no, I, you, you're, you're correct. And I think there's a parallel to be drawn with the Watchers. Uh, and this is something that uh, Mike gets into in his new book, Reversing Herman, uh, which is being released at the same time as uh, and by the same publisher, Defender Publishing, which is Tom Horn, uh, his publishing company, um, re- being released at the same time as my book. and. Uh, just let me throw in a plug here. If you, if you purchase uh, the two books together from the Skywatch TV store, which is at skywatchtvstore.com, you not only get a decent price, uh, a discount on the two books combined, but then you, get, you also get a, a hardcover edition of the Book of First Enoch, which is what most people refer to when they call it the Book of Enoch. It's the Book of First Enoch. Um, and then a, uh, a DVD with like five hours of me talking about the material from the book and a CD with seven hours of audio interviews with me, um, interviewing Mike over the, uh, over the years, everything from, uh, ufology to, uh, his novels, the, the facade and the portent, uh, and his books, the unseen realm and the, uh, the new one reversing Herman, all of that, you know, for less than what it would cost to buy the two books at full list price. So, uh, you get that at the Skywatch TV store. Uh, but Mike and Reversing Herman points out that in the first century, uh, well, in actually the whole Second Temple period, which is the period from uh, between the return of the Jews from Babylon and the destruction of the temple by the Romans in AD 70, Jews, uh, a, a literate Jew during that period, if you asked them why the world was in such a lousy condition, why evil was rampant and people were mean to each other, um, you'd get a different answer than if you ask that question of a 21st century American Christian. Right. I mean, you ask one of us and we'll say, well, it's because of the fall in the garden, Genesis 3. We disobeyed and that brought sin and death into the world and uh, that's why everything is terrible. If you ask a first century Jew, like one of the apostles, uh, you'd get a different answer. They'd say, well, yeah, that was important, but what really Took, you know, when things really went off the rails was when the watchers came down mm-hmm. at Mount Hermon and brought all of this. I mean, yeah, the Nephilim, that, that was bad, but they also brought all of this knowledge we weren't supposed to have, like how to make implements of war, how to um, uh, practice uh, witchcraft and, and sorcery and, right. uh, and uh, you know, cosmetics. And, and not that, you know, cosmetics are a bad thing, but in, in, in the sense of deception, you know, things that we weren't supposed to know, astrology, uh, necromancy, uh, things like you know, uh, contacting the spirit realm. Um, These were things that humanity was not supposed to know. And the watchers, according to the extra biblical book of Enoch uh, and other um, literature lumped together under the term Enochian literature, um, this was part of the uh, Jewish understanding of the way the the world worked in in the first century, the time of Jesus. They, They understood this. And Mike's book, uh, shows how that understanding has influenced New Testament theology. And since the apostles wrote the New Testament under the influence of the Holy Spirit, perhaps we should take it seriously. Right. So yeah. now, that being the case, 
sometime back in, you know, what, 5000 BC or whenever, whenever the, we can guess uh, and we have to guess because we don't know for sure when the watchers came down and um, muddled with, uh, you know, muddied the waters by, by teaching humans who were greedy for secret knowledge, things that we weren't supposed to know. We can see, a, I think, a, a parallel to what uh, is taking place in laboratories around the world today, where now scientists are openly admitting, oh, yeah, we're creating human-animal chimeras. Oh, yeah, we're openly working on super-fast brain-computer um, interfaces so that we can um, merge our own biology with technology and enhance our ability to think by billions, perhaps trillions of times. Uh, we are trying to find ways to radically extend human life to the point that we essentially live forever. In other words, what we're trying to do is to fulfill the promise made by the Nakash in the garden through technology. Ye shall be as gods. And I think there's a very strong parallel between that and what the Watchers did in uh, Genesis 6. Although it's not specific in Genesis 6, it's implied. You have to read, again, Second Temple Jewish literature to get the, the specifics. Yeah, and, and one of the words used in the book of Enoch uh, is that these watchers defiled themselves uh, and right. reveled to them these sins uh, with those women who have defiled themselves. And and so, man, it, it, to me, it's um, there's an element of the gospel with the virgin birth of Christ that resonates in this sort of unholy union that took place with the watchers and that whole narrative of Genesis six and kind of the um, question is, were these watchers, were they just spirits that became flesh? Did they possess humans? Did they like, what was the method? I think that a lot of people, I mean, obviously ultimately it doesn't matter a whole lot, but people question that, you know, and, and I always point out that because people say, well, look at Luke and, and look at Jesus's words saying that, you know, angels don't marry in heaven. Well, yeah, that's in heaven. The whole yeah. point is that they left their abode um, right. and came down. So what does that look like in your research in terms of the actual sort of uh, the mechanisms of, of what that looked like? Well, it, it has to be somewhat speculative because we don't know for sure. Sure. But and and the- I ask this question only because I think as you, as we're talking about here, they're trying to do something very similar now. And right. so and so that's why I bring it up. Well, when we, we look at the, the Bible and we see that uh, angels are encountered by uh, you know, various characters, uh, you know, Joshua, Abraham, uh, Gideon, um, have specific encounters with angels, and they clearly have physical form. I mean, specifically Abraham uh, with three uh, angels, the two that go on to um, rescue Lot from, uh, from Sodom. And, of course, the angel of the Lord, which is a Christophany, Yahweh, but not Yahweh, the second power in heaven. Right. Uh, but they, they eat a meal. Right. You know, right. They eat a meal with Abraham. So um, they clearly have physicality. Um, I would suggest that uh, angels, and that, that's, a, again, another English term that has very limited. Um, sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I know when we say angels, it means something completely different from the uh, from from common culture out there today. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a term that encompasses a broad range of entities: uh, cherubim, seraphim, malachim, ophanim, uh, you know, and, and perhaps some others even. Uh, but demons, who were the spirits, and again, this is per extra biblical liter- extra biblical literature, Second Temple literature, 
um, were the spirits of the giants who were who died during the flood, the spirits of the Nephilim. So uh, demons do not have physicality. They need to inhabit a body, whereas angels do not. They have physicality. Right. Um, they are probably interdimensional. Uh, they can manifest in our four-dimensional space, but then move out of it again. Uh, whereas uh, demons, uh, again, in order to interact with the environment, they need to inhabit a, a human or some other uh, or some or some other uh, entity, some other uh, uh, creature. You know, I think I've known, well, I've known some cats. I'm pretty sure were uh, you know possessed. <laughs> well, I, I think you're right, and, and you go over the origin of demons in your book, and you cover. Uh, you know, not just the the Enochian view or the Book of Enoch view of the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim, but also I believe there was a Greek author that sort of confirmed the same thing, but they had a, a flipped view, a favorable view of these uh, disembodied spirits. Right. Uh, Hesiod, who has written a couple of things, uh, Theogony and Works and Days, and we know a lot of, a lot of what we know about Greek mythology comes from Hesiod. Right. Um, and right, uh, to the Greeks, the, the daemones, D-A-I-M-O-N-E-S, were considered more favorably um, than demons to the Mesopotamians or to the Jews. They were believed to be the spirits of the, uh, the men who lived during the Golden Age of, right. uh, of Cronus. Um, and that once, when they died, they became these daemones who traveled about the earth and, uh, and blessed humanity. So there was at least a, an agreement. And, and I would argue this is another psyop by the, op- by the, uh, by the enemy, by the fallen to convince us that, or to convince our ancestors uh, a couple thousand years ago that, uh, well, these, you know, these spirits are really good. You really ought to, you know, uh, get yourself one, you know, be, inhabited, <laughs> be, be special. And, and Russ Dizdar says that even today though, there are people who are, Afflicted by demons who don't want to become dispossessed, depossessed, unpossessed, because then they they lose these powers that the, they're getting from hosting a demonic spirit. Right. Which to us sounds insane, but I, you know, I guess from a certain perspective, it, it makes some kind of sense. Uh, but well, you look at entertainment media. You look at how they portray themselves in quote unquote art, and um, I think any anybody who looks at it would say, yeah, they're not representing uh, <laughs> probably the most wholesome of ideas, but, uh, but the thing that, that, that amazed me in, in researching the book was again, scholars, you know, secular scholars have known a lot of the stuff that's in this book for a long, long time. And for some reason, it's just never made it into the church. Uh, Hesiod, uh, the, the Greek writer who wrote about the sixth century BC, about the time of Nebuchadnezzar and, uh, you know, Isaiah and um, Ezekiel and, you know, that, that ger- general time frame um, was writing a lot of stuff that uh, later writers, Christian writers said, well, yeah, this is kind of what happened, but not exactly. Right. It, it was, again, it was a, a, a psyop in the sense that the information is sort of true, but not really. And it was intended by the enemy, the principalities, powers, thrones, dominions that the Apostle Paul warned us about to throw humanity off track, to understand incorrectly what these things were and the threat that they posed to us. Um, thing that really blew my mind in, in researching a particular question that, that had kind of nagged at me once I started down this, this trail uh, and it kind of comes back to Hesiod because his work is um, 
kind of key in, in, in pulling out this thread. And if you, if you don't mind me going down a rabbit trail go here, because this takes a little while to, no, this is it. one of the things that I go into the book, which I think is, is something that is mind blowing. Um, in a nutshell, there is a lot more, there's, there's a lot more correlation between Greek and Roman mythology and what we read in the Bible than we've ever been taught. I mean, I think most of us who had to take mythology classes in high school come away thinking, oh, you know, it's nice fiction. You know, these are like Aesop's fables, you know. No, to the ancient Greeks and Romans, this was their religion. And they took it every bit as seriously, if not more so, than most American Christians do today. Um, This was what they based their view of the world on. You know, they were serious about following and worshiping their gods. Uh, every bit as much as the Jews were about uh, Yahweh. Um, the question that, that I started following, that led me down this, this path was uh, wondering when God made his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, uh, he, he tells Abraham, you know, your descendants are going to go to a land that's not theirs. They're going to be there for four generations and they'll come back after the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Right. All right, so who are the Amorites? Well, most of us who have only heard of the Amorites by reading the Bible or hearing a mention once in a while in church, okay, that's just one of the groups, one of the people groups that the Israelites had to push out of the way when they were, you know, when they came to take possession of Canaan, the Holy Land. And they had those two really big Amorite kings on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, Sahan of Heshbon and Og of Bashan. Uh, but other than that, we really don't know anything about the Amorites, most of us. Neither did I until I started reading about a year ago and found that there's like a whole subculture in archaeological studies of people who just study the Amorites. Huh. What's the deal with the Amorites? What, you know, why were they important? Why did God tie the return of Israel from Egypt to Canaan right. to the sin, the iniquity of the Amorites? Well, lo and behold, from about 2000 BC, which is just about the time that God was calling Abram, later Abraham, uh, out of Ur, and I make the case in the, in the book that it's not Ur, but actually a city called Ura in uh, what is now Turkey. He didn't come from what is now Iraq in southeast Mesopotamia. He came from northern Mesopotamia. Right. But anyway, um, about the time God was calling Abraham, the Amorites were moving from their origin, you know, places of origin in uh, Oddly enough, the places in Syria today that are pretty much the, ho- the heartland of Islamic State territory. Hmm. Again, just another coincidence? Hmm. Mm, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, the Amorites basically took over all of ancient, the ancient Near East. They, for, for about 400 years, from 2000 B.C. until about 1600 B.C., which was the time of the uh, sojourn in Egypt and just before the Exodus, which took place around 1450 B.C., um, the Amorites were in control of everything. In the ancient Near East, Canaan, all of Syria, all of what is today Iraq, you know, southern Turkey, the Amorites somehow wound up in control of everything. And here's the key thing. The Amorites founded Babylon. There is no ethnicity called Babylonian, right? Mm. That's like calling me, that's like, that's like calling me Chicagoan or, you know, Chicagoite because I was born there when the truth is I'm. German, Swedish, English, Welsh, etc. Right. There, you know, Babylon was an unimportant, nothing little village until about uh, 1800 BC, when an Amorite king named Sumu Abam became king. And uh, in fact, it was like four generations uh, later 
before any of those kings in that Babylonian dynasty that included Hammurabi the Great even bothered to call themselves King of Babylon. So, with all due respect to Bible teachers who for a century and a half have been putting the Tower of Babel in Babylon, it's time we stop teaching that because it's wrong. Nimrod lived about 1,200 years before Babylon was even a city. Right, right. I, 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 I saw you point that out, and it had never even occurred to me that that was even, because you just, you know, because of the linguistic similarities right. with Babel and Babylon, you just assume that, oh yeah, Babel in Babylon, but no, that's you what, look at it and that's not the case. Exactly, and that's why scholars keep putting Abraham in, in Ur of uh, you know, Sumer, which is southeast Iraq, instead of Ura, which is, uh, you know, northern Syria, southern Turkey, which is uh, where Haran is located, named for his brother, or his brother named for the city, actually. Um, anyway, uh, so the Amorites were the ones who founded Babylon and founded the occult system, on which, uh, which has become a, really a byword for occult wickedness, spiritual wickedness, prophetic spiritual wickedness, because the final, you know, the one world religion of the end times is Mystery Babylon. Right. That's on the Amorites. Okay. That is part of the iniquity of the Amorites. Mm. All right. Things begin to make a little more sense. But here's one of the, here's the thing that really blew my mind when I was digging into this. Um, so the Amorites uh, had control of that whole area. Uh, I, I, by the way, I had to wonder when I was doing this research, gee, that was about the same period of time that the, the Hyksos, these Semitic speaking, like the Amorites, Semitic speaking people were in control of Northern Egypt. I wonder if they were Amorite too. Yeah, sure enough. Scholars have known this for a long time. Hyksos <laughs> were actually Amorites. Their most famous king had a name that shows up in the ancient king lists of some of the Amorite royal dynasties of Mesopotamia. Hmm. So, but one, uh, here's an, uh, another name that shows up in the uh, royal dynasties of the Amorites, of the, the old Babylonian kingdom, the old Assyrian kingdom, and the Ugaritic kingdom. Now, Ugarit was a, uh, a city-state, Syrian coast. Uh, the, the peak of its power was about the time of the judges in the Old Testament. 14th to 12th century BC. Um, that royal dynasty also traced their family line back to an ancestor named Didan, as in Didan and Sheba. Shows up in Ezekiel 38, uh, shows up in uh, Genesis 10, Table of Nations. Right. They, they happen to be nephews of Nimrod, hmm, which, right. I don't okay. think, which I don't think is a coincidence. But there was a tribe that apparently was named for this uh, ancestor, Didan, called the Didanu. Or the Tidanu. It depended on you know who was writing it down—a Babylonian, Akkadian scribe, you know whichever. Uh, but all of the royal houses of the Amorites, at least the ones that we can really trace, uh, there was a very powerful Amorite kingdom in northern Syria uh, centered on the city of Aleppo, and we really don't know much about them because Aleppo has never been depopulated. So there's a lot of stuff buried underneath the city that we haven't dug up yet, or right. we archaeologists haven't dug up yet. Uh, but anyway, the, the Ugaritic kings, the, the old Assyrian kings, the old Babylonian kings, all trace their ancestry back to this, this ancestor, Didan, and this tribe of Ditanu or Tidanu, who had um, kind of a military reputation. Right. Uh, and, and in fact, they were considered such fearsome warriors that uh, the last Sumerian kings of Mesopotamia, ruled from the city of Ur around uh, 2100 BC to 2000 BC. They actually built a wall 
175 miles long that stretched from the Euphrates River across the Tigris River and then around to another river called the Diala, which runs uh, northeast out of Baghdad. Wow. Um, And they actually named this wall the Amorite Wall that keeps the Tadanu away. I mean, you couldn't get more plain than that. They were they, these and in fact, there's a lament for the destruction of some of the cities of ancient Mesopotamia that blame the Tidanu, who you know always strap on the sword, you know, or, or some such. Um, so the, the point being, they were considered really fearsome warriors and were enough of a problem that the uh, ancient Sumerians built this massive wall to try to keep them off their lands and and away from their cities. Right. Now, about 35 years ago, a tablet from Ugarit was uh, translated by scholars, and it was a uh, <clears throat> it was a coronation ritual for the last king of Ugarit, whose name was Amurapi III. Amurapi, it's the same name, by the way, as uh, Hammurabi, hmm. who lived about 300 years before or 500 years before Amurapi, um, and in this ritual. They uh, actually summon spirits of the dead, and they specifically summon the spirits of the Rephaim. Mm. Okay, but they also summon spirits from something they call the Council of the Detanu. Ah. All right, so file a mental bookmark there because this is the same name as this tribe that hundreds of years earlier, like seven hundred years earlier, caused the kings of the last Sumerian king. There were no more Sumerian kings after they got wiped out. I mean, that was their, their la- the Amorites took over the Sumerian kings, done, assimilated into the population, Sumer destroyed, never to rise again. Um, and that's why it became Babylonia instead of Sumer uh, after that. Now, a scholar by the name of Amar Anus, who has written a number of really important academic papers, Heiser, um, Mike uh, re- references a couple of them in the unseen realm, uh, one dealing with the Watchers and the Mesopotamian Apkalu. Right. Yeah, the Apkalu were what the Mesopotamians called the Watchers. Yeah. Well, he wrote another paper about 15, well, about 17 years ago, 1999, 2000, um, speculating on the possible existence of Greek Rephaim. Ooh. So I started reading this because I thought, oh, this is interesting. This might be. And I stumbled onto this in this paper. Um, trying to make a long story short, he says that the the root word of Rephaim, are is RPI, RPI in, the, in the Semitic, the Canaanite. He said that is a phrase that Hesiod, back to the Greek writer Hesiod, mm. used in his, his work Theogony as part of a root word uh, called meropes, meropes, meropes anthropoi. And he said it's difficult to translate that phrase, but essentially that's a phrase that means men of the golden age. Wow. Okay. Men of the Golden Age who lived when Kronos was king. Now, that was the time when the Titans ruled the land. All right? Now, the Titans, you remember your Greek mythology, uh, were uh, deposed by the Olympians, led by Zeus. Right. Uh, Kronos was a really bad father. He had been told that his kids would overthrow him someday, and so he ate them as soon as they were born. Right. Yeah, except that his wife Rhea fooled him. By giving him a rock instead of Zeus. Now, a good thing Cronus is not a picky eater. Um, as he swallowed the rock, Zeus grew up and managed to overthrow Cronus and the other Titans and banished them to Tartarus, 
And Tartarus is not Hades. Tartarus, according to Greek mythology, Greek cosmology, is as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven. Hmm. It's, it's like a special hell reserved for the angels who sinned. Right. Now, Tartarus, most people don't know, is mentioned in the New Testament. Right. Second Peter 2.4, he talks about the angels who sinned, who were thrust down to Tartarus. And the verb, the Greek verb used there is tatarao, the only place in the New Testament's ever used. And there's only one place in the Bible where we know where angels sin, and that's the watchers of Genesis chapter 6. Right. Watchers equals titans, thrust down to Tartarus. Okay? The men of the golden age that Hesiod wrote about, these Merapes anthropoi, again, root word for Merapes, the same root as Rephaim in Semitic. Oh. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. Nephilim. <laughs> equals Nephilim equals Rephaim. All right? Right. And he identifies in uh, his, um, in one of his writings, he identifies some of these Marapes anthropoi, you know, Theseus, the, the Greek hero Theseus. Uh, names another one, uh, Aegeus, the Aegean Sea named for him. He was a king who, uh, you know, committed suicide by jumping off a cliff into the sea. Uh, Polyphemus, who was the, uh, uh, the uh, Cyclops. In the story of Odysseus. Okay, those were the Nephilim, the, the men of the golden age of Kronos. Now, back to the kings of Ugarit and this summoning ceremony to crown the new king, where they summoned the spirits of the Rapha, the Rephaim, and at the council of the Ditanu. And here's the kicker the council of the Ditanu, according to the scholar Amar Anus, the root word for the Greek word titanes titans is titanu <laughs> the council of the titans is who is being summoned in this coronation ritual for this amorite king of ugarit wow and there is evidence at from babylon that there was a a a a, a an ancestor veneration if not worship that took place there among the royal family there as well Hammurabi the Great traced his ancestry back to one Ditanu. Some of the kings of Babylon, descendants of Hammurabi, were named. It had Ditanu as an element in the name. And, and here's another thing. Um, it was common in that, in that day and age, you know, second millennium BC, for names to have what's called a theophoric element. It's uh, a reference to a god. And we see that in the Bible, you know, like Samuel right. or Daniel. Um, Hezekiah, you know, uh, you say that in the pagan cultures around there too. Um, now, most scholars who look at the name of Hammurabi or this uh, this uh, last king of Ugarit, Amurabi, he didn't know it when he was being crowned with this ritual that the sea peoples, what the scholars call them, uh, were about to destroy Ugarit and kill him. So, uh, mm-hmm. sadly, the uh, <laughs> the Titans and the uh, the Rephaim didn't help him much. Uh, <laughs> but his name, they say. Uh, is a compound name with a theophoric element. And the theophoric element is the RAPI, the RPI. But scholars will say that, uh, you know, RPI, well, that's also a root word that can mean um, healer, like, you know, a doctor or physician. Right. Even though they admit there is no example that they can point to of any RPI, Rafa or Raphaeu or <laughs> Rephaim, actually healing or serving in any capacity <laughs> that looks like a healer. But they will say that the, the name means. My kinsman, like Amu, uh, it's like uh, Ami in um, 
like the Ammonites, uh, the, the uh, son of Lot and his daughter, through um, their illicit relationship, was named Ben-Ami, son of my kinsman. Mm-hmm. So Amurabi, Amurabi means my kinsman is a healer? <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, I think it probably means, and I'm no scholar, so I could be way off base here, but scholars admit that this RPI root word from which we get Rephaim, we never see one of these things actually healing anything. I think it means my kinsmen are the Rephaim. Right. And that was what the Amorite kings of Ugarit, of Babylon, were apparently into. They appear to have believed that they were descendants of the Titans or subject to the Titans and descendants of the Watchers, descendants of the Nephilim. Right. And that's so bizarre you mentioned that because, and, and tying it again to the modern sort of world of what we're looking at and I'll, we'll bring in basil here it, it looks like he made it um hey i'm but, here ready to rock and roll baby all oh, yeah. <laughs> right um but I, I, it's really Fashion interesting you like, say that yeah. because a, a lot of what's coming out now is that the you know the deep state or the the elite or what we've labeled the illuminati or whatever they all believe that they are the descendants of these uh and, and i'm not saying that they are i think some of them uh, well, I think most of them, if you test their DNA and whatnot, they're human. I think they're probably deceived on that level. But as far as conjuring spirits and things like that, I mean, they're definitely doing that. They're definitely externalizing all that. So it's no surprise. But what I find so fascinating is that the more we uncover ancient uh, mythologies and, and worldview, the, the context of everything, the more there is a, a, a very clear synthesis between a lot of these different cultures that you know, traditionally we've been conditioned to say, oh, you know, if you're a Christian and you talk about uh, any other religion, you know, they're wrong because, you know, you're a Christian, you believe in one God, they believe in a pantheon. So they're all, it's all lies. It's untrue. And the discussion seems to be much more nuanced than that. And it incorporates a lot of the truths that these other cultures and religions have. Uh, but you just have to look at the origin. Where does it really stem from and right. and that's where you start finding a, a very clear consensus <laughs> with these uh watchers or uh, spirit beings from the sky whatever however they describe it um so i find that whole thing fascinating because it, it verifies the bible and verifies these other gods now the question is you know what's the intent of them where where does it all come from what's the narrative and that's when you can really the, the line is clearly drawn in the sand so to speak you know because you can partake could continue to partake in uh, the antichrist spirit that, that john talked about and, and the babylonian system as you outlined is not just you know a people or just a, a group but it's really a spirit that's behind mm-hmm. it and um and it's alive and well today i would say i think most of us would agree that that's the case so it's just very fascinating that the more we learn about the past the more we the more we understand where we're at and and you know looking into some of the crazy uh, things that the transhumanists and the futurists are saying they want to do, it doesn't sound far-fetched when you talk about, well, yeah, they believe that they're going to, you know, they're, they're conjuring Rephaim spirits, the spirits of the dead. Yeah, of course they want to manifest that and control it and, and technology with the electromagnetism and all that. It seems to be a, a, the perfect vehicle for some of that, which, you know, is perhaps why guys like, uh, 
Elon Musk is out there saying, oh, this AI is going to unleash the demon and all this stuff, you know, it's, yeah, but it, then, but then on the other hand, he turns around and says, but we need to, uh, we need to merge with that, uh, with the technology. Otherwise we're going to become irrelevant. Right. <laughs> right. So it's becoming a demon, but we, so we have to merge with it to prevent the demon from, from manifesting basically is, is, uh, is hey, his plan there. Yeah. You guys are taking that out of context. That's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, that's fascinating. You know, I got to jump in at a very fun spot there. Sorry, I think I think I had a medical emergency, but I'm back back in action. Um, you know, I I got to agree with Gons. I kind of felt kind of the same about um, uh, when it comes to Greek mythology, Roman mythology. You know, we talk about a lot of that, especially when we start talking about the Illuminati. Um, but to see how those things. Uh, are all connected really explains a lot more of the influence of why we're still is sort of dealing with a lot of that today when it comes to, you know, certain occult systems or, um, a secret society or something like that. And it just makes so much more sense now why they have endured for so many hundreds or thousands of years. Um, and, you know, could possibly endure for another hundred or a thousand years lord willing and the creek don't rise so i mean it, it seems like an important thing to realize and i mean that in the literal the whoa oh my gosh is that you sorry yeah come on i was on a roll i'm man. sorry the computers have changed and things <laughs> infiltrate each other and oh that sorry, was your ahead. computer phone call that was my that was my phone but it rings on my computer now and I know. it's all just one big <laughs> It's welcome, all just one big Borg now. <laughs> welcome to Skynet, baby. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. So it, it gives a lot more weight to when we talk about, you know, s certain other connections with uh, Greek mythology and, and other past belief systems. And it, it, it seems like the enemy, the PSYOP, as you say, this, this uh, cosmic PSYOP, the enemy has diversified in, in different cultures and religions. And um, one of the examples just recently, I just published actually this morning, I've been working on it all week, uh, a video outlining Beyonce's whole, you know, Grammy thing. A lot of people made videos on that. I, I did as well, but I found a document, which is actually a whole research paper on Yoruba customs and beliefs. Yoruba being the religion, uh, uh, Southwestern Nigerian religion of origin, uh, which has a pantheon of gods and goddesses of which one of them Beyonce channeled. That's what the Hollywood insiders and media people were saying. Ah. You know, uh, Beyonce channels Oshun, the goddess of a Yoruba. And uh, so, so, you know, this isn't speculation. This is them saying it, even if they don't, don't mean channeling in the same perhaps sense that we do. Nevertheless, I think that's what she's doing or that's what they're trying to do. And it's really interesting because as most people know, Beyonce is pregnant with twins and she's up there doing her thing. Well, this paper, Yoruba Customs and Beliefs, pertaining to twins was published by a twin research syndicate and the paper goes through and talks about how the yoruba population have the highest twinning rate in the world mm. and the fact that there is tons of rituals that have traditionally been associated with it traditionally back when the earliest days of yoruba they used to sacrifice twins because they thought it was an evil you know uh not a good thing that they had twins um but, you know, obviously that changed. Now they're in favor. But even now, if the twins die, they, they believe that the twins itself come from 
preternatural origins. That's on the research paper saying, you know, that's what they believe. And they, you know, if, if they die, they will assign and create images, little statues where they believe that the spirit of the, of the deceased twins will inhabit and mm. they take care of the images. I mean, it sounds like old Testament, <laughs> like just straight up yeah, all that stuff that was crazy. happening there. And it's just amazing that, and, and again, you look at these statues and, and these masks and stuff, and they have all these rituals and, um, you know, on one hand, it's it's you have to appreciate the culture. You have to appreciate the human artistic uh, ingenuity and creativity. Uh, but on the other hand, you start looking at the origins and it all kind of goes back to the same place, which is and in, in the paper. I brought this up. Sorry, I had kind of a long rant, but I brought it up because the the authors of the paper say that the pantheon of the gods of Yoruba is a reflection of the Greek pantheon. And so as much to call it, uh, I believe they, there was a specific term, the African uh, pantheon of gods or something, so, some phrase that, that basically said this is the same thing, uh, but just it's African form. And um, you do that and, and there you go. All the stuff we've been talking about with the connection to the Nephilim and the Titans and everything else and the Watchers, it's there you go. There it is again. <laughs> so uh, right there in front of the entire population you know, Beyonce doing her performance has a direct tie to the Nephilim and everything that's found in the Bible, specifically pertaining to Genesis six. And uh, most Christians uh, are completely unaware of that. So, well, exactly. And again, it's because we've been taught that there are no other gods, uh, that uh, they're just the product of fertile imaginations and uh, fertile pagan imaginations. Uh, but uh, when you, when you read the Bible and you, and you see that God specifically uh, tells the uh, yeah, it tells Moses, you know, on the night that I'm, I'm going to come through uh, Egypt and, and slay the firstborn of uh, the Egyptians, I'm going to execute judgments on all of uh, judgment on all other gods. Um, you know, okay, it was God mistaken? Did he not know that these are just imaginary beings, just right. blocks of wood and stone? I mean, well, no, <laughs> wow. of course not. Um, when you read and start studying the uh, the cosmologies of the ancient world, you you, be, you you see that what the Greeks and Romans believed was essentially um, handed to them, not handed to them, but to, was transmitted from east to west. Uh, Zeus, their chief god, the king of the gods, was the, the storm god. Well, gee, you know, his holy mountain, uh, one of his holy mountains besides Olympus was uh, Mount Cassios. Guess what? Mount Cassios is Mount Zaphon. It's Baal's holy mountain. Mm. Well, it makes sense because like Baal, you know, Zeus, like Baal, was a, was a storm god uh, to, the, to the Hittites. He was Tarhunt. To the uh, Hurrians, he was uh, Teshub. To the ancient Sumerians, he was Ishkur. Same god, different name, different guys, different culture. I mean, you know, the, the Anglo-Saxons called him Thor, you know. Same deity. You can just trace him through history. Uh, th- there was another manifestation that uh, was known to the, uh, uh, to, uh, to the ancient uh, cultures of India. So, um, the the, the the enemy doesn't care what we believe as long as it's not the one thing that's true. And they have a long history of kind of throwing sand in our eyes. We can't identify, you know, this God from this culture is definitely specifically the same God as this one in this culture. Um, the, you know, we don't know that for a fact. We don't know for certain. All we can do is kind of look big picture and then just, you know, pray for God, pray to God, you know, for, for discernment and wisdom. Um, but there are patterns that repeat in the in these cultures. I mean, when you look at the uh, the the Titanomachy, you know, the war between the Olympians and the Titans, you get that same picture in 
uh, in the, the Canaanite culture with, uh, you know, Baal and there's, there's some, you know, tension between Baal and, uh, the chief god El. Uh, you see it in the Hurrian culture. There's a, uh, struggle, a conflict between their storm god Teshub and the, uh, the high god, uh, or not the high god, but the, uh, his, his predecessor named Kumarbi. Um, and it's the same thing. You get, uh, you know, like three different levels of, of gods in, in these cultures. You know, the Greeks had, um, uh, uh, had Uranus and then Kronos and then Zeus. And in the, um, the Hurrian culture, which would have been northern Mesopotamia up to like the Armenia area, uh, would have been, uh, uh, Anu, the creator god, Kumarbi, the, uh, the grain god, and then, uh, and then Teshub, the storm god. It, it basically, you can trace Greek and Roman mythology all the way back to ancient Sumer. And it goes through some changes, goes through, through some modification, but it's basically the same stuff. That's fascinating. Now, one thing that I'm curious about is, you know, like you said, uh, these gods, you know, kind of pop up in the Bible. God talks about taking them out. Uh, they're obviously have connections with, you know, all sorts of shady stuff that, uh, we talk about around here. Um, is there a, uh, well, I think there is, but can you explain what the practical purpose of this sort of, um, discovery can have in in people's lives you know it's it's nice to connect a lot of dots but i feel like there might be some uh, some practical application to some of this well i think the, the key thing in in understanding the, the long arc of history is understanding that we we are part of a a big a, a long game a long war that is, has been waged between these rebellious gods and our creator god um, that holy mountains have always played a key role and that um, essentially the Bible is a chronicle of how we got kicked off of God's holy mountain, Eden, and out of the divine council. God's plan to restore us to that uh, position in the divine council on his holy mountain, where his holy mountain is going to be in the future, and then some prophetic um clues as to as to how the end game of history plays out um, we know from the bible that god's holy mountain is zion that would be the temple mount in jerusalem um i make the point in the book and this is something scholars have, have you know it's not original to me but uh, it's not often taught in church because again as because of the similarity of the names we confuse the tower of babel with the city of babylon even though there was more than a millennium between the, the two uh, we confuse Armageddon, which is the, you know, the big battle between good and evil for all the marbles, uh, with the Valley of Megiddo. And it's because of transliteration between Greek and Hebrew, and then back to Greek and then to English, basically, or something like that. Uh, wh- what it comes down to in a nutshell is that instead of Har Megiddo, or the Mount of Megiddo being the site of this final battle, it's Har Moed, the Mount of Assembly. And you find that phrase, the Mount of Assembly or Mount of the Congregation, over and over in the Bible, if you're looking for it as a, a, a the, the place where, where God meets with his divine counsel, Yahweh with his divine counsel, but also where the rebellious gods want to establish their headquarters, their home, as superior to that of God. You see that in Isaiah 14, where... Um, the divine rebel wants to establish his throne, his mount of assembly in the sides of the north, 
which uh, I should point out, uh, the compass point north in Hebrew is the same as the name of Baal's holy mountain, Zaphon. That's how important Mount Zaphon, Baal's holy mountain, was in Jewish culture. They actually named the compass point north because that's where Baal's holy mountain was. Um, which has some interesting implications for prophecy, by the way. You know, sides of the north is a phrase that pops up in Ezekiel 38, but setting that aside. Um, so the practical application, understanding you know, where humanity was, Adam and Eve in the garden, part of the divine council with God, lost that position because of their sin, their rebellion. All of history then being these rebel gods trying to keep us away from and out of the divine council and off of God's holy mountain. Um, God signals to the fallen at Sinai that he's going to reconstitute the divine council with humanity. Um, Gans, I know you're, well, both of you guys are aware of this because I know you talked to Mike Heiser before. Um, we know that there were 70 nations when God divided the nations after Babel. Right. Uh, the table of nations, Genesis chapter 10, there are 70 nations defined. Um, Deuteronomy 32 verses 8 and 9 tells us that the number of nations was, you know, God divided the nations according to the number of the sons of God. Right. 70 B'nai Elohim. Mike has also shown us in, in Canaanite literature, their cosmology, they believed that there were 70 sons of El, which was their chief deity. And I stumbled onto uh, scholarly research showing that uh, the Canaanites actually believed that they, they thought that uh, the holy mountain of El, uh, his mountain of a d- divine assembly was Mount Hermon. Hmm. So, which, yeah, which makes the transfiguration even more significant. Right. Because um, that took place on Hermon. So right. anyway, so you've got these 70 rebel gods placed over the nations after the Tower of Babel. After Yahweh brings Israel out of Egypt by humiliating the chief god of northern Egypt at that time, Baal, master of the sea. Ha ha, watch this, Red Sea, foom, foom. Okay. Right. He brings them to the mountain of God, Sinai. And after giving Moses the law, but before giving him the plans for the tabernacle, he does something remarkable. Yahweh says, okay, Moses, bring Aaron and his sons, the priests, and the 70 elders of Egypt, or not Egypt, I'm sorry, the 70 elders of Israel. And he brings them up onto Sinai. And the 70, which is not a coincidental number, uh, the 70 elders of Israel, along with Moses, Aaron, and Aaron's sons, have a meal with Yahweh. Okay? Why is that significant? Because that's the first time since Eden, that humans had been face-to-face with God on his holy mountain. This was a message to the rebel gods. I'm reconstituting the divine council. I'm bringing humans back into the council. Your days are numbered, and we're coming for you. Mic drop. (laughs) Exactly. If there was a microphone in heaven, it's that point, boom. (laughs) Wow, that's amazing. Well, just to add to that and to kind of, because I think Basil, I think your question was sort of something that most people who don't look into this stuff have, right? That question of like, okay, well, I know this stuff. Why does it matter? And I think for most Christians, it's like just the knowledge of it changes the understanding of the gospel in a way that it doesn't change the gospel. It just changes, you know, your full understanding of the word of God, which I don't think is a bad thing for any Christian. No, uh, but it, and then it shapes, as you said, Derek. It shapes kind of the understanding of the 
greater cosmic timeline, the history of humanity, where we are as part of it, and what the ultimate destination, what God's goals are, what God's war has been with the rebellious ones for ever since the beginning, you know, right. uh, it just and, and gives it a d- better context to everything in life. Well, I think exactly. And then prophetically that that's why uh, the final battle is, is not going to be fought in Megiddo because you know, heart Megiddo, I'm sorry, there's no mountain at Megiddo. It's a Valley, right? Okay. Heart Moed Mount of assembly, the Mount of the congregation. We know from the Bible that, you know, that that is where God has established his name. His throne is on Zion. That is his holy mountain. And that is where the final battle will be fought is at Jerusalem around the temple mount. And then ultimately there, and we don't know how this is all going to play out. I've, I've got my own beliefs, things that I think are probably true about Bible prophecy. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I think we need to remember when we start arguing pre mid, post mid, you know, pre wrath, whatever. Um, and, and, you know, smiting fellow believers because they disagree with our interpretation of prophecy that the apostles didn't understand the prophecies of the Messiah's first coming. Right. In fact, <laughs> when in Paul writes this in first Corinthians uh, two verses six through eight, uh, he writes that the, uh, the rulers of the age did not understand the mystery that God was revealing. And by rulers, he uses the word archons, which in this context means the supernatural entities Right. aligned against humanity, didn't understand the mystery that God was revealing, or they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Right. They didn't understand that Jesus' mission was to go to the cross, or they wouldn't have been so eager to get him up there. Yeah. Okay. Playing into but, his hands. Exactly. But the apostles didn't understand that either. Yeah. I mean, in Acts chapter 1, they're talking to the risen Christ 40 days after he came back from the dead, and they're asking him in Acts chapter 1, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? <laughs> they were still looking for a geopolitical savior. They didn't understand it until Pentecost. Okay, tongues of fire come down on the apostles. Boom, start speaking in tongues like, ah, okay, now we get it. Redemption from sin. That was what, what this is all about. We shouldn't expect, and I believe that this was deliberate, and that's why Paul wrote what he did to the church at Corinth. The rulers of the age didn't understand the mystery. God is described in the Old Testament over and over again as Lord of hosts. Okay, that means, that means Yahweh of armies. Right. Hosts means armies. He is a military commander. And being competent, um, perfectly competent, he's not going to divulge enough of his plan so that the enemy can devise a, an effective counterattack. So we shouldn't expect to understand the prophecies of Jesus' second coming any better than the apostles who had the benefit of learning directly from Jesus himself. Right. So let's give each other a little grace here if we disagree on some of the specifics because we're not going to get it right until after the fact. But uh, I do believe that the final battle will be fought uh, for the Har Moed, the Mount of Assembly, Mount Zion. And then ultimately, he, and this puts key, the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews into a whole new context. In fact, I, I closed my presentation on this last July by reading from chapters one and two of the book of Hebrews. And it was so emotional by the time I got to the end, I was weeping. I couldn't speak really. Because when you understand that all of history has been God's plan to bring us back to his holy mountain and restore us to the divine assembly, first two chapters of Hebrews take on a whole new context. And again, credit to Mike Heiser for pointing this out. Um, The first two chapters of Hebrews talks about how much 
superior Jesus is to angels. Okay? And when you get into chapter 2, he's, you know, the author of Hebrews has made that case. You get down to verse 10. And, okay, we understand now Jesus is superior to angels and God is making the world to come subject to us. His creation, not to angels, but to us, humanity. And in verse 10 of uh, Hebrews 2, we read, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay? God made Jesus perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that would be us, all have one source, that being God or Jesus. And this is the key verse here. This is the takeaway. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, us, brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, divine assembly. Mm. I will sing your praise. Wow. There's a day coming when he restores humanity to the divine assembly. Jesus, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. I mean, you know, can you even imagine that? That is humanity's destiny and the fallen, the rebel angels who Paul says, you know, do you not know we are to judge the angels are, are just enraged that these glorified monkeys, these, <laughs> these jumped up simians <laughs> that God is placing above them in the cosmic hierarchy. That's going to drive them wild with rage. That's why. That's why they have spent so much time and effort trying to destroy humanity, to destroy the uh, bloodline of the Messiah before he could arrive on the scene. Why they are now working a massive psyop and why there is so much anger, hatred, violence that is centered around this small little spot in the middle of Jerusalem called the Temple Mount. Because that's ultimately where this game is going to end. Yeah, it's quite remarkable. I mean, it's uh, if more people would have these discussions, uh, both believers and non-believers, I feel that it would be, you know, something that would bridge gaps that have been created by the very psychological operation of the the, the fallen ones. It seems like, you know, as as I mentioned earlier, it, it all ties together in this one narrative and. What I find also interesting is that, you know, this, this whole context of what you just read out of Hebrews and this restoration, it's interesting that, that the understanding of salvation and the, and the hope, the blessed hope, is found in this idea of restoration because mm-hmm. there's, there, there's an obvious seeking for something. And, and that idea plays into all the occult promises of the fallen watchers given to man, which is this, oh, you're going to ascend, you're going to become gods, you're going to, you know, upload and live forever on a machine, whatever it is, it's all the same sort of promise of immortality, of ascending, of becoming extra human, superhuman, becoming gods. And it plays on that, I think, scar, if I can say that, on the human spiritual, whatever, the, the human soul that is sin that that Jesus is trying to restore or did restore on the cross in terms of the spiritual realm. And I think ultimately it will come to pass physically as a new heaven and a new earth are created. But it's just so weird because it seems like they, that the enemy is also playing on that promise and deceiving people into buying into the fallen methods 
to steer away from that destination because obviously they hate humanity. And it's interesting that humans uh, are one of the, uh, well, we are very good at uh, killing each other. And at that level, it just seems like we all know something's wrong with that. And it just goes to show that the biblical worldview of, of sin and the fallen nature of man is so true and that these restoration, these ideas of the true hope and, and the, or the blessed hope of Christ is so powerful that I, I think anybody who may not even be a believer but goes through some of this material can understand, like, oh, okay, there is an actual message of hope here. And, um, you know, in all the preconceived notions that you might have had about the Old Testament God being different from the New Testament God and all these right, right. things that we've been fed have no ground to stand on when you do this deep scholarly dig into the consensus of not just the bible and what it's saying but all ancient near east text and and you know mythologies and things that we have discovered uh, it's just remarkable to me that that we live in this time and i do think that uh as we learn more um more will be i think demanded of us in some ways to to be responsible and i think that's what mike heiser's been talking about with you know, being a kind of direction givers in middle earth and his analogy. And (laughs) and I think that's so true because the it's opening up this world of craziness is opening up to a lot of people, but not a lot of them know how to, to uh, manage the landscape. They kind of need some guides because it is a rocky place. We, I remember when I first started looking into some of this stuff, not necessarily from Dr. Heiser, but I'm, I'm talking about the fringe subjects that tie into the Bible. And that's where my questions were. Um, man, I didn't know what I was listening to. I was listening to new age guys. Oh, he talked about Jesus. That's good. Right. Well, (laughs) you know, I didn't know any better, you know? So, so I think, I think the discussions are so important and having that, that foundation is so important. And, and you've been a big part of that, Derek, and finding PID radio early on, you know, cause you were the first guy where I listened to you. One of the first I listened to and said, sounds like a normal guy. And that's nothing against some of the others, (laughs) but some of the others seemed, you know, there's a little showmanship, a little, uh, Little, little, you know, end of the world tomorrow sense that I got that I wasn't comfortable with, even though I, I dwelt in it, you know, it wasn't healthy for me. Um, but you were the first guy, you and Sharon was like, oh, it's a couple. It's, you know, it's just, it's a much <laughs> more uh, threatening, less threatening approach. Um, they'll, bite, so, they'll bake me cookies, I bet, if they're nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I got to agree. I mean, it, it seems like kind of going back to my last question and the answer that you gave it seems like it 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 almost i don't know I, it it excites me to hear all these connections um and that you know things aren't just happening on accident such as you know uh, greek mythology it's not just a random thing that you know somebody made up back in the day it's actually the result of a real life uh you know reality happening all around us and it's a, a, a t- almost a timeless battle going on um, that has it does have a clear beginning and it does have a clear end and we're just sort of in the midst of it right now and uh, knowing how it ends certainly does give me a little bit of uh, relief I guess yeah yeah it, it and it's it's interesting when you look at the the way the material is presented to us now. Like I said, uh, most of us who took uh, mythology in in high school, uh, you know, I came away at the time with the idea that this is just sort of like you know, Aesop's fables, you know, just fiction right. that were you know, kind of stories to kind of guide the ancient Greeks. But you know, 
the, the Greeks and Romans, but th- this this was their religion. They believed this stuff every bit as much as their uh, their, their uh, Jewish counterparts in, in the same time uh, believed in Yahweh, and they took it seriously. They, they made sacrifices. They organized their lives based on what they believed these gods wanted of them. Um, but today, well, you know, it's it's like the the, the phrase we keep bringing back that we open every PID radio with uh, from the usual suspects, which actually from a 19th century short story by Baudelaire, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is convincing the world he doesn't exist. And us in the West, we have fallen for that hook, line and sinker. Yeah. These Greek gods, these Roman gods, these, you know, ancient cosmology, uh, you know, Baal, Astarte and, and Molech and Chemosh, all the, you know, just blocks of wood and stone. They're, you know, like about as real as SpongeBob SquarePants. no, uh, God called them gods. So unless you're going to take up, you know, take issue with Yahweh, the creator of the universe and, you know, argue that he was mistaken, uh, then you need to realign your thinking. Um, we, I started down this path and then we got sidetracked. But uh, w- one of the things I think is just remarkable is uh, the confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. The uh, city god of Tyre, the, the chief god of the city of Tyre, at the time of King Ahab, you know, Ahab married Jezebel, whose father was the king of Tyre. Um, from the time of David and Solomon down, the chief god of Tyre was actually a god named Melkart. And they called him Baal because Baal is just the Canaanite word for Lord, you know, mm-hmm. Semitic word for Lord. It's like we say Lord instead of Yahweh. Okay. Melkart was a god worshipped by the Phoenicians, who, by the way, were descendants of the Amorites, getting back to the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites. Um, was worshipped by the Amorites, or the Phoenicians rather, from about uh, 1000 BC until about you know, 400 BC or so. Um, and uh, the, the worship, of, well, actually even later than that, because Hannibal, uh, the uh, Carthaginian general, who uh, gave Rome all that it could handle for like 15 years, 20 years, uh, was a devout worshipper of Melkart. And they found temples to Melkart as far away as uh, the coast of Spain, okay, the Atlantic coast. So Melkart was a big deal in the ancient Near East for about a thousand years almost. Um, but the funny thing is, when you realize, you know, this, this, this life or death showdown on Mount Carmel, this holy mountain that had been holy to Yahweh, except they tore down his altar to put up an altar to Baal, who was probably Melkart. Um, again, Baal, the god of storms, the god who brings a life-giving rain to the crops and the animals and so forth. Three years before that showdown, no rain in Israel. No rain. Why? Yahweh saying, you have no power on my land. Hmm. And then, you know, before they, you know, of course, the, the, the prophets of Baal couldn't get anything, no response. Uh, First Kings uh, tells us uh, no one listened, no one paid attention specifically. I mean, it's kind of sad. These 400 guys dancing around like modern day Shia Muslims on their Asherah festival when they cut themselves with razor blades and knives and bleed all over the place. Right. That's what those prophets of Baal were doing, these prophets of Melkart. Then Elijah has four pitchers of water filled, again, in the middle of a drought, okay, go down to the river, fill up this water and dump it off on the, uh, and do it three times, 12 pitchers of water, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then lightning from heaven comes down and consumes the sacrifice. Well, that was supposed to be the chief weapon of Baal, right? (laughs) Okay, again, not a coincidence. So it may have been the storm god Hadad that was the prophets of Baal here. But again, the chief god of the city of Tyre being Melkart, I think, and there are scholars who agree, that 
the chief that the God worshipped by these priests or prophets of Baal was the God Melkart. What we never hear in church is that Melkart was just the Phoenician name of Heracles, Hercules. Oh, really? Yes. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. The Greek historian Herodotus saw the tomb of Melkart. He was one of these dying and rising gods because he was not a god eternal. He was a mortal who was elevated. (laughs) One of the Nephilim because he was a demigod. He was a son of Zeus plus a mortal. One of the Nephilim, which adds some a layer of understanding to Elijah's, uh, you know, comment that, uh, you know, perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. Right. You know, maybe, wow. maybe it's the time of year when he's not supposed to be awake, you know, like the dying and rising gods, they die in the fall when the vegetation turns brown and when the spring comes and things green up, that's when the God wakes up. Right. Yeah. So anyway, and, and now today you, you look at, you know, the, these priests took their job so serious. They were slashing themselves, bleeding all over the place, trying to wake the God up so that he could <laughs> straight his superiority. And today he's a Disney cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> This is how seriously we take this in the West anymore. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> but God took it seriously enough that he had Elijah go up there, put his life on the line and say, trust me, I got this. Yeah. So Yahweh, God apparently thought that this Melkart or some spirit that represented himself as Melkart to the Phoenicians, to the Tyrians, was real. So why don't we tell our kids this? Right. And it just makes me wonder because by... Yahweh's intervention with all this, and, and he he really does taunt these other gods. Um, yeah, yeah. What, uh, it's really interesting to me because does it indicate that these other gods were fulfilling some of their whatever supernatural giftings to the people who worshipped him, or or you know was it maybe a one time thing and then they you know a whole ritual was built around it? I, I'm just trying to get a grasp of like. Well, they're, they're, that's really interesting, and that's something that probably will require another book at some point to uh, dig deeper into this. Um, clearly, the uh, these entities gave their followers some power, because we saw that in the confrontation between Moses and Aaron and the magicians in the court of the Egyptian king. Right, right. I mean, they were doing something to transform their staffs into snakes and other, you know, tricks. So there's something spiritual, supernatural going on there. Um we also have a very interesting picture of something in Habakkuk 3. And let me bring this up here so I don't really misquote. going into some books that you never even hear about. <laughs> yeah, this is not one that often gets mentioned, but this is really fascinating because Habakkuk 3 describes the, um, the point at which God is, is uh, said to the Israelites, okay, You've got we, we've done our 40 years time, you know, the, the old generation that uh, rebelled in the desert uh, and wouldn't go in to take the land when I told them to uh, is, is gone. So right. now we're going to go take the Holy Land. OK, um, Habakkuk three, beginning at verse three reads, God came from Teman. A Teman is a uh, site associated with Edom. OK, uh, which indicates that Mount Sinai was not in the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula, was actually north of the north end of the Red Sea. It was in Edom. Mm. Okay. Um, And the Holy One, God, from Mount Paran. Mount Paran is another name for Mount Sinai. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, 
This is a little clue here, raised from his hand, sort of like the thunderbolt of the storm god. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yahweh's the one who wields it, not the dad. Interesting. Or Zeus or whatever. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. Now, this is fascinating. Pestilence and plague, translated in the English, are actually the names of Semitic deities. Oh. Hmm. Debir, D-E-B-E-R, and plague. Reshef. Now, I mentioned that name Reshef earlier in this conversation. You can refer back to it if you like. Reshef was one of the gods, one of the more popular Semitic gods. He was worshipped at uh, uh, the city of... Um, Mari, not Mari. Uh, what was the one that starts with an E? Oh, gosh. See, yeah, I'm not, not an expert, but I've been reading a lot of uh, scholarly papers over the last year, and I'm, I'm not remembering the, uh, the name of the city here. But uh, Reshef was worshipped as far back as the mid-third millennium B.C., like 2500 B.C., and was worshipped by the uh, kings of Egypt, the Semitic kings of Egypt, and then the Egyptian kings who followed them, you know, down to the time of Ramses the Great. The god of uh, Reshef was the god of war and the god of pestilence. Uh, it was depicted as an archer, uh, remembered at uh, Ugarit as like a, the gatekeeper to the netherworld. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here we see these, uh, these deities, and Debir and Reshef are mentioned other places in the Old Testament as well, but you wouldn't know it from reading most English translations. Um, so apparently these entities, whether they're demonic spirits or fallen angels, I don't know, are still subject to the will of Yahweh. Because when Yahweh said, okay, we're marching out from Mount Sinai, we're going forth to take the Holy Land, and Deber, Reshef, you're coming with me, and you're going to do what I tell you to do. Hmm. Now, here's the kicker. I love kickers. It's like an old habit from news. It's like the final story in the newscast that keeps people <laughs> waiting so they can see what the joke story is. Like, can you, yeah. Reshef was specifically identified in the island of Cyprus as the Greek god Apollo. Wow. Mm. Apollo, mentioned in the book of Revelation as Apollyon, the king of the pit. Right. The gatekeeper of the underworld, also the Babylonian god Nergal. Same god. The god of the underworld. But in Habakkuk 3 and elsewhere in the Old Testament, shown as being uh, subservient to Yahweh. Now, how does that all work? I mean, is Reshef slash Apollo Apollyon? actually a bad guy i mean i always thought so you read revelation 9 11 well a king over the pit these demonic things come out I mean, he must be you know king right. over these things. he must be a bad dude but then why is he doing what god tells him to do in habakkuk 3 and again a few other verses in the old testament i don't know wow but it sure says that there are more go- there's more going on here in the old testament than we've been told yeah and, well and the new testament too I mean, there's a lot more going on in the bible there um, isaiah there's a passage in isaiah that uh, where god is condemning the people of Israel for setting places at their table for fortune and destiny. Like, hmm. oh, wait a minute here. Now, fortune and destiny, they're the translators of the ESV and most other English translations capitalize the words. Why? Because they're the names of Semitic deities, gods. Wow. In yeah. fact, the one named fortune is actually Gad. <laughs> which oh, yeah. is the name of one of the tribes of Israel, yeah. one of the sons of Jacob, was named, oh, good fortune. is Okay, we'll name him Gad. <laughs> wow. But Gad was the name of a god in the, in the Semitic pantheon. Yeah, that's, you know, you, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that the English language has really done a disservice in terms of some of the, uh, the understanding of some of this stuff. And, and this is a pretty good example 
of uh, how much there is underneath the surface of the Eng- English words. And so we have to, we have the tools now to dig in. So, you know, oh, we, we have, have, no we have Derek Gilbert now to dig oh, in no. for us. <laughs> you, you, what do you want to read scholars, real scholars like Mike Heiser and people like that? Um, now here's a, here's a question if, if I may, um, you know, we talk about these deities or I suppose we call them, I don't know exactly what to call them, lesser, lesser gods, little gods, um, that have been sort of playing different roles in history. Uh, when you follow, you know, follow them through the different civilizations and the different, uh, arrangements there. Now, I mean, Theoretically, the, these deities are still alive and operating. Um, yeah. That that's my first thing for you to touch on. My second thing is, you know, you talk about this Apollo thing, and maybe we didn't quite understand his role as well as we thought we did. Uh, now, I mean, this this might be getting a little a uh, little out there, but. Do you think, have you seen in your research any instance where like a deity changes sides or changes their role throughout, you know, throughout history or changes an alliance with Yahweh or, or something like that? Well, that's a really good question. And it, it, it is hard to say. Uh, this is something that Sharon is exploring and, and speculating on in the series of novels that she is um, writing. In fact, we're getting set to publish. In fact, we're launching our own publishing company. Uh, hey, there you go. That. Not talked about that previously, but this is something you'll see from Sharon here very soon, a, a series of novels called the Red Wing Saga. Um, and she speculates that some of these gods may have changed sides. Maybe some of them are wanting to repent. I mean, we actually see that in the book of Enoch, where the watchers call Enoch and uh, say, you know, hey, uh, you know, Yahweh's not listening to our prayers anymore. Uh, right. Deliver a message for us. And uh, he not does come back and say, yeah, um, <laughs> he ain't buying it. Right. <laughs> so you know maybe there are some uh, i would also suggest that uh, we have this very um black and white understanding of the relationship between good and evil that uh, you know you got god on one side and then satan and his minions on the other and that's right. it well okay if these entities were so brazen so bold had so much brass that they would rebel against the creator of the universe the one who exists outside of space and time. Why wouldn't they be in competition with one another? All right? right. Why wouldn't the Prince of Greece, supernatural entity, try to take down the Prince of Persia? Right. Or the Prince of Rome or the Prince of whoever, you know? Uh, why wouldn't there be competition between them to see who would reign supreme and establish their personal mount of assembly as supreme in the cosmos? It's, it's probably far more convoluted and nuanced than we understand. My guess is that because we are not physically equipped to really understand what's going on in that realm, because we only perceive three spatial dimensions and one chronological dimension, right? That uh, you know there are probably six or seven other dimensions out there that we can't perceive with our natural senses. Um, God just said, "Look, don't worry about it. Here's all you need to know, and just don't try to communicate with that realm." You know, if I've got a message for you, I will deliver it to you through the prophets or through dreams and visions, but test those and test when you do hear from spirits, test them against the scriptures. Right. Because we don't know. And these entities are clearly not above lying to us. Um, so it, that's a really difficult question to answer. Um, 
like I said, we see in this this uh, picture here in, in Habakkuk, uh, and there are other places in the Old Testament where we have examples of this, uh, where demonic entities or perhaps uh, fallen angels who are you know have been given these names representing plague, pestilence. Um, uh, burning or or hail. There's another one that's uh, re- represented as hail. Um, maybe they are only do God's will. Maybe they freelance from time to time and go off and just you know create evil on earth. We you know, don't honestly know. <laughs> well, there's, there's also and Doctor Heiser is the one that really pointed this out in in, in his book Unseen Realm and in you know looking at the Divine Council. But the uh, First Kings twenty two encounter. Where, you know, the Lord puts a deceiving spirit in the mouths of the prophets, right? And decrees a disaster. And, uh, you know, that was, there there was a spirit that volunteered in the, in the heavenly council to do that. Right. And, uh, you know, you think, wait a minute, God's sending one of his spirits to lie. And it's like, really? But then, you know, you understand the, the, the context of the story and it's because, uh, God had decreed that Ahab was going to fall in a battle. Right. But the interesting thing about this, and again, the, the people who reject the idea of the council because, you know, God doesn't need a council. Right. Right. Okay, yeah, given he doesn't need you or me either, but here we are having this conversation. Right. Uh, that God asks for opinions. How are we going to, how are we going to do this? And some spirits said one thing and another spirit said another. And finally one said, Hey, I, I'll do it. I'll deceive Ahab by being a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And Yahweh right. said, go and do so and you will succeed. Right. So he knew what was going to happen. I mean, Yahweh knew. But he, for his own pleasure, decided to have these entities with their own free will. And, uh, you know, he serve as sort of a, I like the way Mike puts it, a supernatural task force. Right. <laughs> to carry out his will. Um, so, yeah, it, again, the, the spirit realm, the supernatural realm is far more complex and nuanced than we've ever been taught. Um, but, and we don't know the specifics of how it works. And apparently God for our own good has not wanted us to get too involved in that. Yeah. Um, but we do know enough from the Bible to have a narrative there saying, look, this is where you people started. Here's where you're going to end up. If you just trust in me, trust in, you know, the, the second power in heaven, Jesus Christ, the Messiah as Lord and savior. Um, and in between, we see all of this activity, um, and the ways that the enemy is trying to deceive us, demoralize us, distract us, divide us. Yeah, it's it's such a different perspective from what you're just going to get on Sundays. And I, well, yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing to to. I think people still need to get some of that stuff in terms of the basics. Uh, but I think when you merge some of this stuff, there's a there's a synthesis, if I can use that word, that kind of happens between the head and the heart that I think is missing from the church. But uh, absolutely. And, and back to that point about what, what it all looks like, what's, what's kind of the, if there's a God that switch sides or, or whatnot, you know, it's possible that humans really did conjure up a lot of, or prescribe the gods and worship them, but it was the gods, you know, when you look at Psalm 82 and, and God is sort of mad at the gods for accepting the worship and not doing what they're supposed to do, which is kind of take care of the people. So I find it interesting because, like you said, there's free will, but then, you know, the god of, let's say, the ocean or the god, you know, the, the god of thunder, the, these sorts of elements, it almost seems like maybe they are tasks that get fulfilled by whatever spirit God sends right, or whatever right. entity he sends, you know, to fulfill that role. And the, and the mistake here is either that spirit 
accepting that role that, that we give or we assign to them and saying, oh, yes, I am God. And, and, and then that's part of the rebellion. Uh, mm-hmm. Or in some cases, maybe, you know, maybe it's not so defined as like, oh, the Lord of the air. Well, yeah, maybe there's a bail that is, you know, kind of trying to take that name. But ultimately, the reason why Yahweh seems to be reproving himself over and over again in the Old Testament, right, that he is the true God. Maybe there is a deeper point in that 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 seems to say like, "Hey, I'm really in control of all of it," and um, it, it is a little bit more nuanced than the "us versus them" kind of mentality, where God is on one side, you know, Satan and his bad minions on the other, and they're at this conflicting war. Uh, you know, that's sort of a simplified explanation for something that's probably much more nuanced, and it feels like we're as we start understanding this stuff deeper, we're getting into some of the nuances and. We can work out some of these things and, and some of the things we'll never know. Uh, but at least with what's been given to us in the, in the word of God, we can investigate. And it looks like on the shoulders of guys like Heiser, uh, you've put together a book that's going to hopefully help people grasp some of this stuff even more. And like I said earlier, you know, going through some of your uh, drafts here, not that Heiser isn't clear. He's very clear, uh, but maybe, and then I said, maybe it's because, I'm familiar with the Derek Gilbert kind of tone or like rhythm of speaking. It just sounds like a conversation. Well, that's, that's how I tried to write it. When I, when I started writing it, um, I've done some nonfiction writing contributed to several anthologies published by defender publishing, but I've always tried in the past to sound smarter than I really am. And, uh, yeah, you know, I'm not Mike Heiser, so I shouldn't try to write like a scholar. And when I got into this project and I had somebody comment that, uh, he said, you know, the first chapter or two was still a little bit, and this was coming from a retired English teacher who knows what she's looking at, uh, that uh, by about the third chapter, you, you kind of hit a rhythm and it was more conversationalist. Well, that's what I was going for. I tried to write it, imagining myself standing in front of a group uh, as though I were speaking it, right? trying to make it clear rather than um, trying to write it in a formal style because I was really having to force myself into that box and it didn't really fit. So sure. Uh, so I appreciate that because that's what I was trying to do is to write it more like I was explaining it verbally to somebody, which is really more my strong suit. Right. Uh, Sharon's the, you know, she's got the minor in English. She's the one who can really write. I, I just try to transcribe what's in my head. Right. Yeah. And I think that's how this information is going to get out there more. Um, and just, you know, people who are interested can, can really absorb it. And um, I think it does shape understanding where we are now, as we kind of touched on during the conversation. and it almost seems like there's a reason why uh, our generation seems to be the ones that, that starts understanding this stuff, given the context of where we are in human history, you know, that, that there's a, right. a cyclical nature to uh, some of this knowledge. And, um, you know, I'm excited for, for your book and, and, you know, the continued work over at Skywatch. I'm sure uh, covering all the stories daily is pretty exhausting with <laughs> the amount of stuff going on in the world. <laughs> But, uh, you know, what, what other plans do you have? Any follow-ups in terms of books to this that you're thinking about working on? Well, a couple of things. Um, we're, we're working on one for the end of the year that I can't really talk about now, but uh, just for uh, my there, own. Tom Horn's got you on that leash again. Secret yeah. book. <laughs> just kidding. Yep. But there's a, uh, you know, I, I'm fascinated with the, the idea uh, that um, the Amorites may have been more influential in all of human history than, than, uh, than we've ever thought. And it's not just because they apparently believed that they were calling on the spirits of the, uh, the Nephilim and the watchers to, you know, empower their Kings. 
when you go back and look at their their very earliest their earliest leaders and, and the names that are attested by the uh, cultures around them, the the Akkadians and the Sumerians, the the theophoric names. Again, the names always had the name of a god in them. Right. They appeared to have two main deities early on, and once they moved in and took over, you know, Sumer um, and turned it into Babylonia, they adopted a lot of the gods of the Mesopotamians. But early on, they had two main gods. One was the god. You know, El, who remained the chief god all the way down to the, you know, through the Canaanite period, the Phoenician period, um, he was sort of like, you know, semi-retired. Uh, and El sort of became a generic name for resident of the spirit realm, like Elohim, okay? Even in Hebrew. The other god that they seemed to worship from their very earliest days was the moon god. And just recently, you know, after writing the book, uh, I learned that the moon god was far more important in Mesopotamia than I ever thought. Uh, I've heard Bible teachers teach for years that, uh, well, Baal and Nimrod are the same, and they were a sun god. And the sun god is, you know, that came down and you know, Zeus and blah, 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 and Nimrod and December 25th and sun god. Well, no, I'm sorry. The sun god was subordinate to the moon god, apparently. The moon god, in fact, in at least one ancient inscription was is described as summoning the divine council hmm okay uh including the chief god of babylon marduk the moon god was the preeminent god and i need to do more research on this but here's the reason why i think this is fascinating the moon god in amorite i mean to, to the sumerians he was known as nana to the uh, in akkadian it was sin uh but the Amorite name for this god was Yarik. And there was a tribe of Amorites called it Yariku. Now, because Semitic languages, you transpose the Y and the J, you get the name of the city that was a center for moon god worship. That was the first city attacked when Joshua led the uh, Israelites across the Jordan River, Jericho. Oh. Now, when you look at the timing of the attack, they celebrated the um, the Passover before they began the attack on Jericho. And the Bible tells us in the book of Joshua, it was on the 14th of Nisan, and they began the, uh, you know, the marching around Jericho the very next day. All right, well, Nisan at that time was the first month of the year. Beginning the first of Nisan, all across Mesopotamia, they had their big New Year's festival called the Akitu Festival. It was a big 12-day occult working, basically, devoted to glorify Marduk. It involved Marduk coming down from heaven with his consort uh, Sarpanet and having ritual lovemaking at the Temple of Babylon to bless the kingdom and all this. Um, That, uh, because the first day of the year of the new month in the lunar calendar takes place on the new moon, okay, when the moon is hidden in the sky. The 15th of the month is when the moon is full. So they celebrate the Passover and they go out and they start the attack against the city of the moon god on the first full moon of the new year. Uh, Uh, Coincidental? I don't know. Probably Uh, not. Yeah, and then after a, a little misstep there at the city of Ai, where uh, one of their guys took some stuff that was supposed to be destroyed from Jericho. Um, the city of 
Gibeon makes a treaty by fooling Jericho, by fooling Joshua into thinking they were coming from a long ways away. Um, the Amorite kings of Jerusalem and most of the major towns in southern Israel, southern Canaan, come together and fight against the Israelites at the Valley of Ajalon. And that was Joshua's, that was the, the battle that uh, featured Joshua's long day, where they're defeating the Amorites and Joshua says, okay, Lord, we don't have enough time before sundown to smite all of these enemies and wipe them out. So please, can you just extend the time period here? All right. The moon god kept out of the sky for a full day while they were busy wiping out the armies of people who apparently <laughs> venerated the moon god. In fact, and I didn't learn wow. this until last week, the kings of Babylon, the Amorite kings who founded Babylon, even though Marduk was the chief god of the city of Babylon, uh, they actually considered the moon god, Sin, more important than Marduk. They were moon god worshipers. <laughs> so, so the moon god worshipers... God prevented the the very moon that they were worshiping from coming out. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Now now get this. Now get this. Um, The city that Abram came from, I mean, even if we suggest that he came from, you know, southeast Iraq, which I I don't believe is true, uh, but they settled in the city of Haran before he came to Canaan, right? Mm -hmm. There were two other, besides Jericho, two other main cities in Mesopotamia that were centers of moon god worship. One was the city of Ur in Sumer, which is where we thought previously that Abram came from. The other is Haran. So God went to this Amorite city that was devoted to the moon god and said, I'm going to call somebody from that city to come out and come to Canaan, where in 430 years, his descendants are going to come back and wipe out all the other moon god worshipers from, from the <laughs> land that I'm claiming for my people. So. And, and so what is the symbol of the fastest growing religion on planet Earth today that uh, within 50 years is supposed to surpass Christianity? Islam. Islam. Wow. So is there, is there a connection there? I don't know. <laughs> Physically, maybe not, but spiritually, yeah. it's outside the realm of possibility. In fact, Joel Richardson's new book, um, Mystery Babylon, right. makes a strong case that Mecca and Saudi Arabia are Mystery Babylon for that very reason. Mm, yeah, I saw I saw the uh, the premise of the book there, and and I've covered this uh, this little point of uh, info here in past episodes, but it's worth mentioning given the context here. Ephesians six twelve, very familiar passage. Mm-hmm. The Greek word cosmocrator, which is usually translated a ruler of this world, uh, according to the Strong's Concordance definition, is a ruler of this world that is of the world as asserting its independence of God used of the angelic or demonic powers controlling the sublunary world. Sublunary. Sublunary world. So the cosmocraters have some sort of connection there to the moon. And then, interestingly, it just reminded me of the writings of uh, Helena Blavatsky, Mm -hmm. the uh, late 18th or 19th century uh, occultist author who uh, wrote The Secret Doctrine, Volume 1 and 2, uh, which was influential in some of the occult belief systems of uh, some of the uh, darker Nazi types. She believed, or she wrote in her book, that Yahweh, and of course everything's flipped, right, from their perspective, Yahweh is actually just a moon god. <laughs> and that, and that you know, that's, that's what the Jews were worshipping the whole time, is a moon god. Very oh. interesting that they would, <laughs> that she, of all people, you know, the, 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 one of the biggest occultists of... Uh, of the 20th century, really, that influenced a lot of the secret societies and stuff in the 20th century, 
uh, would say that. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. Just a well, couple things that you reminded me of. Yeah. It, well, it, it's certainly like Gon said, it's, it's hard to fully articulate exactly how this changes um the uh, the paradigm. view or the feeling or the paradigm you know uh, of the entire spiritual realm but it certainly does just that and so i want to uh, thank you for bringing that out and laying it down for us here on the show uh now is your book out or is it coming out it's going to be out mid-march uh we had promised a ship date of march 7th we may miss that by a week or so but it's going to be mid-march okay and where can people find it well, uh, wherever fine books are sold, of course, uh, but if they go to skywatchtvstore.com, skywatchtvstore.com, there's a special offer of The Great Inception, along with Mike Heiser's new book, Reversing Herman, and that package deal will also get you a hardcover edition of the Book of Enoch and uh, a DVD Ooh. set of uh, several presentations I've given on this material, plus an audio CD, an, well, an MP3 CD, rather, an MP3 CD of seven hours of interviews, uh, uh, Mike Heiser on A View from the Bunker, my podcast, uh, over the years, him talking everything from ufology to his new book. What a value. And you can get it now at Skywatch <laughs> Store, skywatchstore.com. Skywatchtvstore.com. Skywatchtvstore.com. Yeah. Well, Derek, thank you so much for coming on the show, buddy. Um, again, just really, really fascinating stuff. And I can't wait to dig deeper um, uh, next month, February, March. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next month, there we go. And um, so, everybody, make sure to go do that. I mean that that Skywatch TV deal sounds fantastic, and I'm not even getting paid to say that. Um, <laughs> uh, you can pass that along, Derek, just in case they do want to pay me for it. Uh, anyways, once we again, just started th- an affiliates program. Basil is the first one. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and only I have exclusive rights. <laughs> um, okay, all right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Derek. Brothers, it's my honor. I appreciate it. Well, there you have it, folks. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Derek Gilbert, just such a treat. Just such a pleasant treat. Uh, yeah. And uh, we're lucky to have him here on the show. Lucky to have him as our best friend and confidant. <laughs> <laughs> The father you never had. (laughs) Um, And so we will certainly get him back on. But go check out the book, The Great Inception. It's going to be sweet. And, uh, you know, it's obviously Skywatch TV, all that good stuff. He's all over the place. You can't miss him. Uh, Yeah, he's uh, he's working hard over there in, um, where is it, Missouri? Somewhere. Somewhere we're not. Crane, Missouri is where they're at. Working out of there. And the address is 472. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, okay. Well, there you go. Hey, if you guys are just so happy to be listening to this and, you know, right by now, if you're listening to me right now, you're probably one of the few people who do not turn off the episode, uh, you know, before all this riffraff at the end. So, you know what? Good for you. Good for you. And for that, you get a prize. And your prize is you get to listen to me ask you to leave us ratings and reviews on itunes it's totally awesome <laughs> you're really wow. you're really stoked and um you know it, it's one great oh, way a cat. there is a cat here sorry about that it's a great way to help out the show um a lot of people uh, we're very thankful that um uh it, it, that we, some people choose to help us out financially but if you can't help us out financially just simply 
going to iTunes, going to Stitcher, leaving a rating and a review, uh, telling people why you like the show, things like that, sharing the show, getting people to uh, discover Canary Cry Radio. This is actually, it helps us out a lot more than you guys think. Every time you leave a rating or review, the iTunes uh, artificial intelligence is like, this must be worth sharing bleep lord bloop <laughs> and it does and it puts us on the rankings and uh you know if enough people rate and review after e- each episode we actually make like the top 200 uh podcasts like quite a bit um yeah as far as yeah we that will, uh, we guys try to crack it yeah in the spirituality and uh religion religion section um it you know if enough people start rating and reviewing we get bumped up there i think one time we were even in the 30s um couple not unusual for us to be in the top 60 you know which is awesome i mean we're just we're just a couple of weirdos um so we thank you guys very much for that. Now, as I said on the last episode, a fun fact. This is just fun fact for all you statistic nerds out there, um, or math nerds. I, I know those are very similar types of nerds, but you know, I just want to be sensitive to the nerd culture. There is a difference. Uh, less than 1% of Canary Cry listeners, um, actually d- donate to the show. And I gotta say, uh, the, it, we're very grateful if it weren't for the generous donations of that 1%. Uh, we, you know, it'd be real tough to do anything. Actually, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make any threats or anything, but we we may not have made it this far. Um, but probably not. Yeah, I mean, if we're really being honest, seriously, seriously though, <laughs> it's it's one of those things where uh, I would say I would say it's kind of a god led thing that we we're still around. Yeah, and and it's also because of the community. It's sort of a a double you know double whammy thing there where. You know, we, we were called, we were led to do something, but without your response, it really wasn't confirmed. And, you know, over time, it's proven that yeah, we really should be doing this because uh, you guys do respond. But, uh, you know, um, as Basil said, it's uh, <laughs> the the elite listeners, yeah, the elite 1% listeners. And Gons, that, uh, and Gons has a baby coming, so he's freaking out, guys. Like, seriously, <laughs> he is freaking out. Um, well, I have to, I got to find the metal to, to scrap together a, a katana sword. And I mean, it's just a big... I know, you need to start training your daughter in karate as soon as possible. <laughs> um, so yeah, anyways, for those of you who are feeling that little tug on your heart right now, that little, uh, that, 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 that little leading of the Holy Spirit there, and you just want to sew into this ministry, um, then, you know, we, we would be so grateful. And, um, we just hope that, uh, you know, we pray that God blesses you that and also he will bless us through that so that's awesome it's like a big circle of blessings y'all um and so yeah uh you can go to canarycryradio.com slash support and you'll uh find a bunch of options there you can make uh you can sign up for a monthly donation uh you know five bucks even one dollar i i did the math on this guns if t- even 10 percent of our listeners gave one dollar we could uh, pay all the bills, keep the, sh- keep the, keep this ship floating and, uh, keep the, uh, the show going for, you know, as long as, as, as long as the Lord provides, maybe, um, maybe even more frequent episodes. Well, right. I know that's the thing. I got to spend all my time working down at the, working down at the butcher shop, chopping up animals all day, like a, like an animal. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't actually work at a butcher shop. I'm sorry. Yeah, was that was a lie. I repent. People. Um, but, I, <laughs> just but I do totally have a day job. A, yeah. Um, but anyways, uh, so yes, 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 yes. You know, it, 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 anyways, we're talking well, way too much about this. Now we're just okay. shills. We're shills, gone. We're just shills. Yeah. You know, and the other thing that uh, just to remind everybody, um, 
I think there is a resurrection that occurred, and it's called the Joyspiracy Theory. So look oh, out for... Oh, look at uh, you. Yeah. Look yeah. Look out for, Thanks uh, for another that. episode soon, right? Yeah, that voluntary plug. I really appreciate that. Uh, a lot of you remember this this old show I used to do called the Joyspiracy Theory. Uh, a new episode hasn't come out in quite a while, but I have been busily recording new episodes uh, this week. So keep looking forward to that. You can go onto your iTunes or your Stitcher or whatever and look for the <laughs> Joyspiracy Theory. And it's you can been also. It's been so long. Sorry. It's yeah. been so long that I was the guest three episodes ago. That's true. That's- yeah. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. It's been a while, but we got a whole new thing going on. It's going to be awesome. You guys are going to really love it. I'm, I'm really excited about where this is going. So please go check out the Joyspiracy Theory. Also, Gons has a Face Like the Sun YouTube channel. Very fantastic. Still plugging away, exposing the truth all over the world, Gons. Yeah, you know, it's kind of crazy. Um, I am uh, approaching the 666th video published Uh-oh. on the channel. So I kind of want to do something special for that. Um, it might be a little <laughs> while, but, uh, you know, because, uh, you know, it's, it might be a good reason or a good excuse to actually do a, a good study of Revelation 13 and um, you know, uh, just go into the passage do, there yeah, and yeah, yeah do, actually do some look six, into six, the stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because it, the patterns are there beyond the book of Revelation, just so folks realize that, you know, so. That's very anyway, enticing. That's, uh, yeah. I'm definitely going to listen <laughs> or watch to all that. Um, and third notice, we still got Canary Cry News Talk going every week, everybody. So go uh, subscribe to the Canary Cry News Talk channel. And a lot of you tried to go to the website recently and found it was down. And uh, we found we've, we found that uh, people just weren't typing the URL, <laughs> the URL incorrectly. <laughs> it is canarycrynewstalk.com. All right. All right. Anything else, Gons? We've this is great. I'm yeah. really loving this like riffing where we can just shill out all of the other things we're doing. Yeah, well, it's okay. We haven't shilled out in a while. Shill out, bro. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I will say uh, we're making really good pace on Canary Cry News Talk. Our first episode was at the end of August mm-hmm. and um, of 2016, and we're already at 28 episodes in. Wow. So. We're, we're much more persistent with uh, Canary Cry News Talk. Uh, however, yeah. it is a little bit less um, produced and, you know. Yeah. Well, it's a lot easier to do it consistently when it's only about a half hour long, too. It's a, That's another thing, people. It's a short show. It's great. It's just you're in, you're out, you got you your can, info. Yeah, you can uh, do a little half hour jog and listen to an episode of News Talk and yeah. you're on your way. It's good stuff. Okay. Anything else? That is... It. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. But until you do, think outside the cage. Mm-hmm.